Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, New Jersey's clean energy future. What's next with electric vehicles? We're coming to you on Friday, December 13th, 2019, from the Hilton Garden Inn in Hamilton, New Jersey. There's widespread agreement that New Jersey will not achieve its clean energy goals unless it gets moving on electrifying its transportation sector, the biggest single source of greenhouse gas emissions. How the state should go about doing it is a matter of dispute. What, if any, new incentives are needed to convince motorists to buy electric vehicles? What role should utilities play in building out the charging infrastructure? What types of investments may be required in the electric grid? These and other questions are the focus of today's NJ Spotlight Roundtable. And now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce today's program. Welcome uh, and good morning to you all. Uh, my name is John Mooney. I'm founding editor of NJ Spotlight and uh, thrilled to be doing this event today. Um, happy holidays to all of you. Um, this is our final roundtable of the year, actually our 13th of this year, I think a record. Uh, I guess fitting for the Friday the 13th. This is Friday our 13th. Um, and, uh, you know, we're really thrilled that these events have, have um, really, we, we think, make a difference and, and really important to our mission uh, in covering and, um, you know, bringing you uh, issues of importance to the state. Um, we really believe it's, this is one of the only places that you can have these kinds of conversations about these kinds of issues. So, uh, you know, and I often say this, if you've been here before, you've heard me say it, um, that there's so much conversation, uh, some of it civil, some of it not, that goes on online. But the opportunity to get people in the same room, I think, is, is critical to, to our democracy and, and civic engagement. And I think it gives us an opportunity to, to work through some issues that, that we can't necessarily otherwise. So, um, again, I really thank you. Uh, one change of plans I want to give you a, a heads up on. Um, we typically live stream these events and unfortunately today due to technical difficulties we were not live streaming so if you have friends out there uh, who are wondering why the YouTube isn't showing me right now um, you can let them know the event is happening it's just not going to be live we will be putting up a video we've scrambled a bit and we will be putting up a video of the event as soon as we can afterwards so um, so please you know let let folks know that there still will be a video that they can watch but it just won't be live um, as such, I also want to do a little shameless marketing at the end of the year, um, not only Friday the 13th, but uh, you all may have heard of Giving Tuesday, which was a week ago. Uh, we're calling this Please Help Us Friday. Um, and an, 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 it's not as famous as Giving Tuesday, I get that, but uh, equally important. And uh, we really rely on the support of, of folks like yourselves. Um, and our readers and our viewers uh, to, to keep us going. And um, at the end of the year, as you all know, who work in nonprofits, it's a critical time. And, and really, um, if you can uh, dig into your wallets and, and support us any way you can, uh, whatever you can afford, it's much appreciated. Um, as such, we also can't hold these events without the support of sponsors. Uh, a lot of you, you know, a lot of you folks go to events and have to pay a fee. Uh, to do so, uh, ticket price, that's not something we do. Uh, we make these events free uh, because we think that's part of our public mission. But they do cost some money, uh, needless to say. And um, we need sponsors to do so. And, and, and the generous support of those sponsors really makes it possible and really 
is the reason you're here without paying any ticket price or here at all today. Uh, and I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, to tell you a little bit about today's sponsors before we get the, the uh, program going. Steve? Thank you, John, and thank you, everyone, for being here. We're uh, grateful for your, uh, your interest and your attention, and um, we've got a great program today. And um, the sponsors who make that possible, uh, we would like to say a few words about them, and uh, um, I have them here today. So, firstly, PSE&G, which is New Jersey's oldest and largest gas and electric delivery public utility, serving three-quarters of the state's population. PSE&G has installed 145 electric vehicle chargers at 20 customer sites, initiated a popular workplace charging effort, and collaborated with BMW, Nissan, and EVgo to promote the sale of EVs and install chargers along the New Jersey Turnpike and Garden State Parkway. As part of its Clean Energy Future proposal, PSE&G wants to help deploy 40,000 more EV chargers in homes, as well as at work, at school, and on the road. PSE&G's Clean Energy Future proposal would make critical investments in clean energy and advanced technology that would boost New Jersey's role as a national leader in energy efficiency and jumpstart the effort to achieve the state's clean energy goals. So thanks very much to PSE&G for supporting the event. Also supporting, yes, thank you, and thanks to PSE&G. Also supporting is NJ Carr, the New Jersey Coalition of Automotive Re Retailers, uh, known in shorthand as NJ Carr, was founded in 1918 as a nonprofit organization serving the state's 510 neighborhood new car and truck dealerships. New Jersey auto retailers employ nearly 39,000 men and women, and last year generated $36.2 billion in sales and contributed more than $1.97 billion in state and local taxes to the New Jersey economy. As a trade organization, NJ Carr promotes honor and integrity in the sale and service of motor vehicles and informs its members on a variety of business and regulatory matters, management practices, industry trends, and legislative issues. So thanks to NJ Carr for their support as well. And lastly, supporting today's event is Charge EVC, which is a coalition made up of diverse interests founded in October 2016 with the mission of accelerating the electrification of transportation in the state. This mission seeks equitable benefits for all New Jersey citizens, including all its electri electri electricity customers. Their programs and policies are based on state-based research, surveys of best practices nationwide, and on New Jersey energy market analytics. Charge EVC has received national recognition for their approach in New Jersey and is organizing similar approaches in other mid-Atlantic states. So thank you to Charge EVC. <laughs> Two quick announcements. So actually, firstly, um, we are taking questions. Um, many of you have submitted questions in advance as part of the registration process, and we've curated a number of those for Tom Johnson to, uh, to bring out during the, the moderation. But in addition to that, uh, we will be taking uh, questions by way of the index cards that are on your table and look around, uh, hold them up during the program. We will take them from you. And, um, and lastly, we're also uh, taking questions by way of uh, tweet to the hashtag 
NJ Electric Vehicles. So that would be hashtag electric, uh, hashtag NJ Electric Vehicles. And we will be able to curate questions uh, in that format as well. Um, lastly, we have uh, standing in for Dave Daly of PSCNG, we have John Dempsey, uh, Manager of, Trans of Transmission development and strategy. Uh, some of you know John. He was recently on our panel of, uh, of the uh, energy storage topic and uh, did yeoman's work in bringing intelligence and uh, expertise to that. So he'll be joining in, in Dave's stead today. Um, you noticed in the, in the charge EVC mentioned there of, uh, of taking into account national approaches. We actually have a, a treat today um, by way of a uh, virtual keynote, a brief statement from um, from Patty Monahan, who is the commissioner of the California Energy Commission, prepared a special video for us to, uh, to see, which we're going to um, air momentarily, um, followed by our live keynote by Mark Warner of Gable Associates. So with that, I'd like to direct your attention to the screen for the video from, uh, from California, and thank you very much. My name is Patty Monahan, and I'm a commissioner at the California Energy Commission. Thanks so much for letting me join you remotely. It's a pleasure to be here talking about electric transportation, which is hands down my favorite thing to do. So I wanted to share a bit about the California experience and a bit about my optimism around electric transportation and how cities and states can really move the ball uh, and help the, help the country reach a tipping point where electric vehicles will be just as easy to refuel and to use as a conventional car. We have a lot of momentum in our favor. We have seen battery prices over the last decade drop 90%. 90%, that's phenomenal. It's comparable to the price drop that we saw in the solar market. And if we continue on this trajectory, in the next five to 10 years, electric vehicles will be cheaper to buy, not just cheaper to operate, but cheaper to buy than conventional vehicles. But to reach this tipping point, we need to overcome three major barriers. And the state of California is working on all three of these. So let me just share a little bit about our experience. The three barriers, the three C's as we like to call them, cost, convenience, and consumer awareness. I'll go through each one. So on the cost side, these vehicles right now are more expensive to buy. And that is a huge barrier. So the state of California has a number of different incentives. If you're a new car buyer and you want to buy an electric vehicle, you get a $2,500 rebate. If you are uh, buying a used vehicle, and especially if you're in a lower income or disadvantaged community, you get a much higher rebate. And what we're trying to do is make sure that this is electrification for all, not just for the wealthy, not just for the arugula eating elite, but for everybody. Uh, the second barrier is convenience. And on this front, we need to make sure that electric vehicles are as easy to refuel and to use as conventional vehicles. So this means we need a robust charging infrastructure. We need it in homes, we need it in apartment buildings, we need it at workplaces, we need it in public areas. We need to be able to alleviate the range anxiety that some people feel when they get into an electric vehicle. They worry, well, how am I gonna refuel it? I'm gonna have screaming kids in the back of my minivan trying to get them to a game and I'm gonna run out of uh, battery and, you know, and I'm gonna have to plug in and I don't know what to do. And so we need to make sure that we can alleviate and eliminate range anxiety by having a refueling infrastructure available for all. The third big barrier is consumer awareness. 
Uh, right now, there's a paucity of information about electric vehicles. People are even confused about what an electric vehicle is. Some of the surveyed data indicates that people think a Prius is an electric vehicle. So there's confusion between what's a hybrid electric vehicle, what's a battery electric vehicle, what does it mean to plug in, how do I plug in? So there's a lot of room for just raising the awareness of consumers that these vehicles even exist. Uh, the more we can do to get people into an electric vehicle, the butts and seats really is a really good strategy for um, helping people learn about electric vehicles, learn about their benefits, and feel comfortable in them. So I really hope that you all can get to the finish line on your legislation. I think um, it has some key elements around setting aggressive uh, uh, goals for electric vehicles, making sure that there's uh, good incentives in place, and ensuring that there's a charging infrastructure ready to, to refuel these vehicles. Uh, together, I think the states really have to work together to make sure that we can overcome these barriers and reach this tipping point on electric transportation. This is the only way we are going to reach uh, our goal here in California of having a carbon neutral society by 2045. We have to electrify almost um, every vehicle that we can and then we have to use very low or zero carbon fuels in the rest of those vehicles. And together, I think the states can make a difference. We can reach a tipping point. And you all just need, need to bring that legislation to the finish line. Thanks again for having me. I hope the rest of the workshop goes well. And again, I wish I could be there with you. We can still clap for her. We'll let, we'll let her know that there was a standing ovation. But there was a, actually a wonderful video. And I'm told that was taken with an iPhone. And I'm actually. Uh, remarkable quality of it. And speaking of, I, I was remiss in not um, giving a special shout out to Steve Lebetkin, who is uh, taping this for us and also will be providing a podcast on our site. Um, when uh, I'd say it'll be uh, early to mid next week, we'll have a page up on the site that will have all the information about this event, including this video and any other presentations we're giving, um, as well as our as well as the tape of it. Um, so thank you, Steve, for, uh, for helping us out on this and, and making that available. I'd like to uh, invite our live uh, keynote speaker, uh, Mark Warner, uh, Vice President of Gable Associates, uh, which has been a good friend of uh, NJ Spotlight. Um, it focuses on developing advanced energy projects for commercial and public clients and also early stage uh, development programs. Uh, Mark previously served as the Director of Energy and Sustain at the Sustainability Institute of the College in New Jersey and Sustainable New Jersey, building over a decade of experience running one of the first solar energy companies in New Jersey. Uh, his other work has also include uh, renewable energy, especially around solar, energy master planning, uh, energy storage, and microgrids. Uh, we're thrilled to have him here with us um, to help frame this discussion. Mark. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today. This is going to be a wonderful session this morning. It's a chance for me to talk about my favorite subject. I'm especially thrilled to be here as the live keynote. That'll be good news for my family. Um, <clears throat> and um, I'd, I'd first like to thank uh, New Jersey Spotlight for organizing this. This is an especially uh, relevant and timely uh, discussion. And I think you can tell by the turnout today that there's a lot of interest 
uh, in this topic. And then also especially thank the sponsors that, that made this possible. So thank you very much. Um, so I just want to start with this picture. Some of you may recognize the guy in this picture. We named the town of Edison after him. And what's shown there is a car full of batteries with a New Jersey license plate. So uh, this is a topic that's actually about 100 years old in this state. Uh, and I think we're now really taking it to the next level. What my job is as the live keynote is to, in essence, uh, strike a tone uh, to, to set the stage for the what I'm sure will be a very lively panel discussion. So what I'd like to do is uh, cover a couple of things. I'm going to come... I'm going to come out here so I can see. Um, I'm going to just, just to level set, I'm going to talk about what electric vehicles are and why they're important. Why do we even care? Uh, I'm going to give you a snapshot of the state of the market in New Jersey as it exists today. And then I'm going to talk about what are some of the biggest issues in the state right now and what's going on around those big issues. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, in, basically introduce some topics that I'm sure will be covered in a lot more detail by our panel. And then a couple of closing thoughts. So first of all, what are electric vehicles? I think everybody, if you're in this room, you probably know the answer to this question. But what I want to clarify is we're talking today for the next hour and a half about any vehicle with a plug. All right. If you're using electricity from the grid as your primary source of energy, that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about traditional hybrids. Just because you have a battery or an electric motor doesn't mean that you're a plug-in vehicle. You're still using gasoline in those cases. That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about uh, either alternative fuels like hydrogen or uh, biofuels and so on. All right, so this is everything for the next hour and a half is about vehicles with a plug. And the context for that, the 50,000-foot the, the framework for everything that we're going to talk about is we're talking about displacing the use of petroleum in vehicles with grid-supplied electricity. That's the big strategic opportunity that we're talking about today. So, boy, this, this is going to be fun. Um, so, why do we care? Um, every conversation, every article, every paper that talks about EVs in New Jersey starts with a statement that vehicle transportation segment accounts for about 50% of our greenhouse gases. That's true. This is just the data that shows that. This is a pie chart of the greenhouse gas footprint in New Jersey. You can see that about half of it is transportation. Uh, the, the other charts basically break those three segments out. There's really only one thing that you have to know. These charts are all to the exact same scale. So you can compare these different segments visually. And the thing that jumps out is by far the biggest segment on the whole in the whole state is that blue bar. That blue bar is the use of gasoline in light duty vehicles. So the light duty vehicles account for the the biggest single segment of greenhouse gas emissions in the state and diesel is also a substantial segment as well. Um, so that's a huge opportunity for improvement. The technologies are now available for us to make a change um, and when you think about it, think about what the state has done. This red segment here is the emissions associated with electricity generation. Think about what the state of New Jersey has done over the last 20 years around renewable energy and ener energy efficiency. And uh, literally billions of dollars, massive amounts of market development. And that's in order to address the smallest pie in the, in the, in the whole architecture. We haven't really done much yet on what really the biggest opportunity is. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, this particular chart talks about 
greenhouse gas emissions, and that's important for a lot of reasons. But what I also want you to think about is what goes along with that is plain old air pollution. NOx, SOx, PM2.5, all the things that we know have dramatic public health impacts. So I, I don't want you to just think about this as we're saving the planet. This is not about just saving the trees. This is about saving the people. We're talking about vehicle electrification in order to make dramatic improvements in public health for the people that live in New Jersey. So um, beyond the environmental emissions impact, that's sort of the, the go-to conversation when you talk about vehicle electrification, there are a lot of benefits. The answer to why should we care is number one, everybody in this state is gonna save a lot of money and we're gonna be a lot healthier at the same time. Now, if that sort of general statement is not good enough for you, we've done a lot of very detailed analysis around this. Um, we've looked at um, how vehicles electrification impacts three different or three different groups of people, the EV owner, utility customers, and society at large. And we've looked at how it affects the operating cost of vehicles, what, what it'll impact will have on the cost of electricity, and how it affects air emissions. So the short answer is that fueling a car with electricity rather than gasoline costs about half as much. So people are gonna save literally billions of dollars by transitioning to an electric vehicle. Um, we believe it will also lower electricity costs, and there's an easy way to understand why. Uh, we all pay about a nickel a kilowatt hour for the relatively fixed costs that, that support the utility, maintaining all those wires that go up and down the road. If we increase the use of electricity and spread that fixed cost over more kilowatt hours, everybody's unit cost of electricity goes down. Uh, vehicle electrification, and by the time we get out to 2035, 2040, about 30% of the state's electricity is going to be going into vehicles. So this is a substantial growth in the use of electricity, and that has some beneficial impacts on the cost of electricity for everybody, not just the people driving EVs, but for all ratepayers. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, it's a big part of uh, emissions reduction. The statistics to use at your holiday party this year is that every electrically fueled mile is somewhere between 60 and 80% cleaner than a gasoline fueled mile. So uh, the, the drivers are gonna save money. That adds up literally to billions of dollars a year ultimately. Ratepayers are gonna benefit by a more cost-effective grid, and we're gonna have a cleaner state. Um, all of those are good things, and if you do some very careful analysis and look at the net benefit, meaning that if you add up all the benefits and subtract off our best estimate of cost, you come out way ahead, something to the tune of about $11 billion on a net present value basis between now and 2035. So everybody wins from this. It's hugely beneficial. That's why it's important. So where are we today? Um, New Jersey, I would say, has... Uh, done some very interesting things. Uh, those things represent that we, in essence, have leadership aspirations, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, so we have opted into the more stringent air standards coming out of California. Uh, there is a state exemption for battery electric vehicles in New Jersey approved by the legislature uh, and signed by the governor. Uh, there is a new, uh, created by the governor, partnership to plug in, uh, a collaboration and cooperation across uh, the several key agencies, including the BPU and the DEP and the Economic Development Authority. Um, the DEP is offering a rebate for installation of uh, charging equipment today. Um, there has been VW money in New Jersey related to the Dieselgate settlement. 
uh, and a lot of that has been applied to electrification initiatives. And as we'll talk about in a minute, there is very clear, strong natural interest from consumers in New Jersey in electric vehicles. So those are all good, but those are really starting points. And if you spend some time to compare what we're doing in New Jersey to other leading states and look at what they've done as leaders to where we are today, there are some places that we are lagging. Um, we have done very little so far to address the affordability gap. Uh, as the commissioner mentioned, these vehicles are more expensive today. There's about a ten dollars to $15,000 gap. That number is dropping, but that's still a major barrier given the goals that we have for adoption. Um, the single biggest issue is range anxiety. As the commissioner mentioned, people are very concerned about what am I going to do if I get out on the road and uh, I need to charge. I just don't see enough of these public charging stations around. Uh, so that's a really major issue, and we haven't done a lot to address that yet. We don't yet have universal access to even routine charging infrastructure. There's a lot of people that are very concerned about, can I even charge this thing at home? And if you can't charge it, you're not going to buy it. Um, and, we, and, and I'm sure my friend Jim Appleton will talk more about this later, but we have some, some uh, progress to make on the vehicle buying experience. Um, you know, I, as a secret, now, first of all, I will say there are some dealers that if you walk into the dealer and you say you want to buy an EV, you will have a very strong, supportive experience. There are also other dealers where that's not the case. I played secret shopper on this about a year ago. I walked into five random dealers. Every I just walked in and said, hey, I want to buy an EV. Every single one of them tried to talk me out of it. The first one, the first words out of his mouth were, oh, you don't want to do that. Do you want your family stranded on a road in the middle of nowhere at 2 o'clock in the morning with a dead battery? So that's not the experience that's going to really help us get there. The good news, we are making progress on that, but we have, we have a way to go. And I'm sure Jim will be talking about that during the panel. Um, the last one is consumer awareness. Uh, with the exception of the people in this room, almost nobody knows about this. Do the test at your holiday parties. Ask somebody whether they know about anything, uh, anything about EVs. If they know anything at all, it will be, they'll say, yeah, I've heard of this thing called Tesla. That's it. That's the extent of consumer awareness. And even if we did a great job on everything else, if we don't do a good job on that, it won't matter. So we need to be firing on all these cylinders. I would say that New Jersey has made the first steps towards market leadership. And we are now at a crossroads of whether we're really going to continue that journey and become a market leader or not. Um, just as an aside, many of you are aware that the state uh, is working on an integrated energy master plan. And to sort of set the context for how big the opportunity is here, that plan assumed that 100% of vehicle sales in New Jersey will be electrified by 2035. So in 15 years, that plan assumes that we would need to be 100% of sales being electrified in order to achieve the 80% the, uh, reduction by 50 goals. So that's, uh, and, and their conclusion was that electrification is a key part of uh, meeting those goals. It's the primary contribution to attainment of those goals. Um, in order to make that happen, we need to set some very aggressive uh, adoption targets and that there are going to need to be some significant changes in the market in order to be able to do that. That's really what we're talking about today. So where are we? The chart on the left shows you what the sales have been in New Jersey for both battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. You can see the sales has been pretty strong, 90 27%, 83%. Those are very, by any, in any market, those are very, very strong year-over-year -year sales growth rates. So New Jersey's been, been 
pretty strong on sales lately. Um, and we are now at the point where by the end of this year, my estimates are we'll have somewhere between 33 and 35,000 uh, electric vehicles on the road, uh, which, which ain't too shabby. Um, the trick is that that, stale, uh, that sales growth rate is starting to slow. Uh, we can see the evidence in the 2019 results that we're not going to sustain that, that growth rate. Uh, there are some really fundamental structural market issues. Why? The bottom line is that the EV market is exploding. They're very, very popular on a global market basis. Um, and in essence, the industry is currently supply constrained. I won't say they're rationing it yet because the industry is making more EVs this year than they ever have before. And they will build even more next year but they are supply constrained compared to demand. And so those vehicles are only going to the most attractive markets. And right now, that's not New Jersey. So in essence, we're sort of having this conversation at the exact right time. We've been able to enjoy fairly strong growth without having to do much, but we're now sort of at the point where that's catching up with us. If we want to really uh, attract the product, uh, be part of the global leadership on electrification and have EVs coming into the state, we need to do more in order to be able to support that market. Um, so if we have 30 to 35,000 cars on the road now, uh, one of the things that changed in the last couple of uh, months is that we now have a formal state goal in New Jersey, which is to put 330,000 plug-in vehicles on the road by the end of 2025. So uh, it took us about eight years to get 30,000 vehicles on the road. We've got about six years to increase that by a factor of 10. So we've looked at this in detail, and I will tell you that that is achievable, but aggressive. So let me just real quickly look at some other benchmarking. If you look at uh, the bars represent 17 reference states, other states that we consider market leaders, either because they're ZEV states or because they behave like ZEV states and they're doing things actively to develop their market. And you compare where New Jersey is. The first chart is what is our year over year sales growth for 18 versus 17. New Jersey ranks sixth in that group of 17, which given that we haven't done a lot to make that happen, that's actually pretty good. Um, I think that represents, and then the other one is what is the fraction of annual sales? So last year, New Jersey ranked fifth in that group of 17 market leaders, which again, ain't bad. I think this represents the fact that there's a lot of strong natural interest in these vehicles by New Jersey consumers, that even without a lot of market development and activity, people still want these cars. Uh, so I think there's a lot of untapped potential in New Jersey, uh, and that's good news. Uh, if you look at infrastructure, however, the picture is a little less encouraging. If you look at how many uh, public charging stations there are of all types uh, compared to the number of EVs, uh, we rank 17 out of 17. So we have some work to do on charging infrastructure. If you look in particularly at public fast charging uh, as a fund for every 1,000 battery electric vehicles, we are 13 out of 17. Yay! So um, we, we have evidence of strong consumer interest, but we clearly have some work to do on getting the infrastructure in place that the commissioner was talking about. Right now, these vehicles are not convenient enough to attract mainstream consumers because they're not as convenient as the cars that they're used to. So the last one in talking about the state of the market is, all right, I talked about cost, availability of vehicles, sales results, infrastructure. But the key issue is, do people want these things? Even assuming we did all that other stuff, is there consumer interest in these vehicles? 
Well, there was a poll that was done by Eagleton, sponsored by the New Jersey Climate Change Alliance uh, through Rutgers. And this shows fairly clearly that yes, there is strong interest. This was 1,000 adults in New Jersey. Half of those respondents intend to buy a new car over the next five years. That makes sense. The average sort of service life of a car is around 11 years. So half of the respondents buying a car in five years makes sense. And here's the key statistic. 38% of those people who are going to buy a car in five years would seriously consider buying an EV. So if you put those two numbers together, we're in the neighborhood of something like 19% of uh, prospective car buyers, 19% of the market are ser would seriously consider an EV. So just for perspective, that 330,000 goal, that represents 5% penetration of the, P of the vehicle population by 2025. And it puts us on target of somewhere around 15% sales per year by 2025. So this would confirm that if I've got 19% of the uh, respondents in interested today, that's an achievable number, but it's going to require a high conversion rate. We've got to get most of the people that are really interested in EVs to make that adoption decision over the next couple of years. Now, looking at the 53% of the folks who would not seriously consider an EV, here were their issues. Number one, by far, 56% identified running out of power on the road as a major concern. This is the old range anxiety thing. I'll talk more about this in a minute. So without doing something in this area, we're not going to convert those interested buyers. 44%, this one was a little bit of a surprise, but not really. 44% are just concerned about how am I going to charge this thing at home? Because if they can't answer that question, they're not going to buy. And number three, 35% listed vehicle uh, cost as a major concern. And that was an even higher concern for households with less than $100,000 a year of, of, uh, of income. So, um, you know, this gives you a snapshot of the state as it stands right now. So let me talk about kind of the big issues. Given all that, where do we go from here? And by the way, my big issues list uh, as of about Midnight last night was 10. <laughs> so we don't really have time to cover all of them. There are a lot of interesting things to talk about. I'm sure many of these will come up in the panel discussion. But let me hit, I think, some of the biggest ones. Um, big in terms of the impact they have on the market and big in terms of the discussion that's going on within the state right now about what to do. One is what are the barriers and what can we do about them? If we have this 330,000 vehicle goal, what problems do we need to solve to really achieve that? Number two, will there be an impact on the energy grid? If we're displacing petroleum with electricity, uh, is that going to be a problem? And if so, what's it going to cost and what do we need to do about it? And are we prepared for it? Because if we get everybody into EVs and break the grid, that's, that's not good. Uh, and the last one is, and I'm sure this will get a lot of discussion today, is uh, can utilities, electric utilities, help in the development of this market? And what should the role of the utility be? It's not just a question of can they help? The answer is absolutely yes. The real question is, should they help? What is the right role for utility in this overall market? So let me share with you a couple of thoughts on these questions. First of all, the adoption barriers. So I like to think about market development like making soup. You need to have the right ingredients, and then you need to put them together in just the right way uh, to create something worthwhile at the end. That's what we're trying to do here. This is the list of all the ingredients that need to go into creating the electric vehicle market in New Jersey. First of all, we need to have vehicles that mainstream consumers want to buy. We need to have vehicles that mainstream consumers can't afford. 
We need to eliminate that range anxiety concern, which by the way, we all talk about range anxiety. Range anxiety is actually a very complicated thing that ties up the range of the vehicle, how long it takes to charge, and the availability of chargers. So that's complicated. But that's actually not the issue anymore. You can now get cars with a lot of range. Uh, the charge times are really coming down. The real issue is charge anxiety. Am I gonna be able to charge when I'm on the road if I get outside my normal driving pattern? Uh, we need universal access to a routine charging solution. If people can't charge in a routine and convenient way, they're not gonna buy the vehicle. Um, we need a supportive and encouraging vehicle purchase environment, and we need a massive improvement in consumer awareness and, and visible presence of these vehicles on the road. I, when I first started selling solar in this state back in 2001, my biggest problem, I would sit at the kitchen table and people had never even seen one of these things. Um, we're sort of, and nowadays everybody in New Jersey has seen solar. You don't have to explain what it is anymore. That's a massive change in consumer awareness. We're at the beginning of that journey on electric vehicles in, um, uh, as well. And we need more vehicles on the road. We need more people talking about them at their holiday parties. Uh, and we need a massive increase in just the understanding and awareness uh, of what these vehicles can do. And then we need to do all those things and not break the grid. We need to make sure that we can achieve high levels of electrification without harming the grid that we depend on for everything else in both our lives and our economy. So these kind of give us uh, the Mark Warner subjective scorecard on where we are on each of those. Green means good. Red means uh, we have some major initiatives that need to be implemented. Yellow means we've started, but more work is needed. Um, the, the having vehicles you know, available that people want, the, the vehicle industry is doing this. Just about every major OEM is offering an EV now and will offer more soon. Most of them are projecting that somewhere between 30 and 50% of their retail sales will be electrified within the 2025 to 2030 period. So this is happening. Uh, when we have this thing in two years, there will probably be at least 100 plug-in vehicle choices uh, available in New Jersey. Uh, affordability, uh, it's improving. Uh, the battery prices are coming down, the vehicle prices are coming down, but it's still about a $10,000 premium. So there are a lot of people that will spend $45,000 on a car, believe it or not, um, but not the mainstream consumer. So we need to be investing in that, uh, in, in that market. And by the way, when people think about rebates, the natural inclination is, I'm just giving a rich guy money to buy a fancy car. That's the immediate response. Um, I don't like to think about it that way. As a market development person, what we're doing with trying to make these cars more affordable is similar to what we did with solar. We're investing in the scale of the industry that makes those cars cheaper for everybody sooner. When you look at what happened with solar, we gave rebates, we did SREX, we did a lot of fancy things. And what happened was the industry got bigger and it got more competitive. So we need to make similar investments in this industry to achieve the same outcome. Um, we're basically have done very little to address charge anxiety. We've done a little bit on routine charging. I made that one orange because it's sort of halfway between red and yellow. Um, we have made, we are starting to make progress on the sales experience, but have more work to do. And we have a lot of work to do both on consumer awareness and then everything related to ensuring that the, the grid integration is going to happen. Um, this is a list of everything that's going on in New Jersey. I won't go through it in detail. Um, one key thing to point out though, so the bottom line is there's a lot going on. We could spend an hour talking about this page. 
The thing to know is that, again, compared to other leading states, New Jersey's done very little. But if I could wave my magic wand and do everything on this page, these are things that are already underway, but just getting started. We would go from being sort of dead last in a lot of categories to being a top three market. So we have a lot of opportunity right now to go from nowhere to being a market leader if we follow through on the things that are underway. One of the biggest ones is that we now have a piece of omnibus legislation working its way through the legislature. It's up for discussion as part of lame duck. Uh, and it would codify and institutionalize a lot of the things that we just talked about and set formal goals for the state of New Jersey. So the big question is, will there be an impact on the grid? The short answer is yes, of course. As I said, we will ultimately have about 30% of our electricity in this state going into vehicles. That's going to have a significant impact. We've studied this in detail. We've worked with several utilities at a detail engineering level to uh, simulate the impacts on the distribution system and the markets. Um, one thing is, is there is, to, everybody needs to understand that there's a lot of headroom in the existing grid. And uh, if we can use that headroom to accommodate this additional load, uh, it won't have a big negative effect. The issue in order to make that happen is when people charge. So the key conclusions are that we have plenty of capacity in the grid short term to handle the number of vehicles that are expected the next couple of years. I don't want anyone walking out of this room saying, oh my God, the grid's going to blow up tomorrow. It's not. Uh, we have some time, but we need to use that time to start the planning. The key transition is that when we have more EVs, there's a little technical, but when we have more EVs than we have transformers, that's where it starts to get interesting because at that point, you'll now start to have multiple vehicles charging on a single transformer at the same time, right? And that's where the, the loading conditions start to become more serious. So uh, we have some time to figure that out. And the key here is that what's nice about vehicle charging is there is some flexibility on when it happens. Most people, they get home from work, they plug in their car, and as long as it's charged by six o'clock in the morning, they don't really care about what happens between now and then as long as they can trust it. So. Uh, many viewers are familiar with demand response, you know, curtailment programs. Well, those are difficult because at the end of the day, most people need their energy when they need it. But this is a case where we have a large and substantial load, ultimately 30% of the load on the grid, where we have a lot of flexibility about when it happens. And if we're smart and we take advantage of that, we can really minimize the harm, potential harmful impacts on the grid. So we call that managed charging. It's a technology that means that when you plug in at night at home, that you have there's some coordination uh, or price signals about when you do that charging. And if we develop the market on that basis, we can cut the impacts on the grid by about a factor of four, which is really significant. So the big strategic answer is yes, there will be an impact. And if we're smart and take advantage of managed charging programs and build the industry from the ground up on that basis, we can really minimize what those impacts are. Ultimately, when we've got 30% of our electricity coming, going into vehicles and we're building on this managed charging platform, EVs can be a powerful load optimization tool for the entire grid. It's something that can help reduce the cost for electricity if we're smart about it. The last one, and probably the biggest one, we could spend a whole hour just on this slide, is what is the right role for a utility? There are some that will argue that there is no role for utility, um, that there are plenty of people in the market today that are happy to spend their own money um, by building infrastructure and so on. 
EVs are going to happen whether utilities happen or not. So why should we invest ratepayer dollars in those cases? Um, and, and those are very valid and, and important questions. Um, I would say, based on what we just talked about, um, I'm not exactly sure what the right role of the utility is, but I'm pretty sure it's not zero. If for no other reason, given the significant impact that this is going to have on the grid, the utilities need to be involved to keep up with and hopefully help encourage responsible integration of this new load into the grid so that it's not harmful. So at a minimum, utilities need to be involved for that reason. There are some other places where when I, I'm, I'm currently working with nine different utilities in five different states. And when I look across sort of the trends there, the other place that utility involvement is coming up is using utilities to help address barriers and doing things that only utilities can do. So for example, um, for those of us that are in this every day, one of the issues is rate design, how electricity prices are structured and how those rate design issues affect the, the viability and the economics and the feasibility of different kinds of charging. Only utilities can help provide those rate solutions. So there's a, there's a list of things that utilities are uniquely well qualified to help with and that's one reason to consider having them involved in the market. The other one is they can help address unmet needs and make sure that we address uh, policy priorities. Um, and, and for my friends in the charger community, uh, don't be offended by this, but the competitive market will tend to install these solutions where they're either easy or profitable for the most part. And that's what they're in business to do, so that's not a surprise. But there may be market needs that are neither easy nor profitable, and those are still those are solutions that utilities are uniquely qualified to help with. Uh, but it was important to realize is that those utility investments can be done in a way that is stimulating private investment. Um, and the last one is that there's a long list of things that utilities will tend to care about that are really important, like reliability and socioeconomic equity, making sure that the investments we're making really maximize public benefit. Uh, and that there's increased rigor. There are some significant security risks here. Um, can you imagine some bad person getting control of all the chargers in the state on election day, for example? Uh, you know, we could literally use these chargers to create the energy equivalent of a denial of service attack on our grid infrastructure. That would be a very bad thing. So there are some things here that are really important that we need to be caring about. And those are the sorts of things that utilities are good at dealing with. So I gave that list because those are the conversations that I see working across multiple states and looking at why people are entertaining the idea of having utilities involved in this market. Um, and when you look at what leading states are doing, here's the kinds of roles that are being carved out. Uh, having utilities help with residential chargers, but especially implementing those managed charging programs that I talked about to try and minimize grid impacts. Uh, and you can do that in a variety of ways that we don't have time to talk about yet. But there's a lot of things utilities can do to make sure that that integration is happening in a responsible way. Uh, utilities helping especially with public fast charging uh, and particularly around things like rate design and incentives. And then helping in some other important segments that are relatively underserved today, like charging in multifamily settings. If you live in an apartment and your landlord doesn't want to put in a charger, you're not going to get an EV. It's as simple as that. So uh, that's a very challenging segment that utilities are, are being lined up to help with. Um, there are others, uh, like for example, workplace and fleet. Fleet's interesting because fleet operators are very, very sensitive to savings on operational expense, and EVs potentially provide that. And if we had the right 100 people in the room, 
and they all decided to electrify their fleets, that by itself would meet our 330,000 vehicle goal. So fleets are a way to really accelerate adoption and increase the visibility and public awareness, but they need solutions for charging to be able to do that. And then there are a lot of pilots under consideration for advanced mobility solutions like electric car sharing, for example. Um, and there's a lot of emerging conversation now about not just light duty vehicles, but medium and heavy duty vehicles, the big one being buses. Uh, in New Jersey, think about, uh, think about this. We put the, the least healthy place in the state is in the back of a school bus. And we put our kids there twice a day. Really, no fooling. So imagine a fleet of school, electric school buses in New Jersey not only improving the health for the kids, but also the public health for the communities through which those vehicles drive, and then showing all those parents that electric vehicles are actually a real thing. So the bottom line is that if you look at the trend, um, there's a lot of conversation about electric utilities not doing it all. Nobody is just turning to the utility and say, okay, you do it. The approach is to have utilities help create a charging ecosystem uh, and to do that in a way that leverages and stimulates private investment in that charging infrastructure while meeting policy goals, avoiding grid harm, and then maximizing the benefit for all the ratepayers. So closing thoughts, now trying to, given all that, set the tone for the panel discussion. This is really big. What we're talking about is transforming two of our biggest industries. Uh, electricity is one of our biggest industries. Cars are one of our biggest industries. And we're now talking about massive transformation of both of those in a really linked way. That by itself is huge. But when we do that, we're going to be completely displacing one of the other biggest industries, which is the extraction, processing, and distribution of petroleum. So three of the largest industries on the planet, all of which are over 100 years old, are going to be massively transformed by this one thing called vehicle electrification. This is huge. This is really huge. So um, in the case of New Jersey, it's our single biggest opportunity for both greenhouse gas reductions and air emission quality improvements. It's a major improvement in public health for New Jersey residents. If you only walk out of the room today with one thing, it should be that electric vehicles are a response to the public health crisis related to air pollution. Uh, and then number three, we didn't even get a chance to talk about it, but everything that we're talking about with uh, electric vehicles is very synergistic by the state's goals to increase renewable energy use. I'm really looking, actually I can do it today because I have solar at my house, but I want to put a sticker on the back of my electric car that says my car is solar powered. And we have an opportunity to basically everybody in this state have that same sticker. Um, and so lastly, I think New Jersey has huge potential. I would characterize us as sort of a mixed bag now compared to what other leading states are doing. Uh, we've had a good start, but the goals that we're talking about, this opportunity that we've been talking about, it won't happen on its own. So I like to end with a quote from my favorite founding father. We're continually faced with great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. This is hard. It looks hard. There's going to be a lot of work that's needed, but it'll be really worth it at the end. So thank you. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, that presentation will be available online as well. So for all of you who took copious notes, um, there will be a, a visual to go with it. 
Um, so this is panel time. Uh, you know who you are, so if you could join us. And as you do so, um, as Steve mentioned earlier, uh, we do appreciate um, the interaction with the audience on these, and the way we do that is a, a couple ways. One is we have, as we mentioned, there's pads and index cards on, on the table. And um, if you have a question that you want the moderator to include in the, in the discussion, just we'll be walking around uh, and you just wave to us and we'll, we'll take it from you and we'll get it up to the moderator. Um, and um, the other way, I'm just double checking something. Uh, the other way is through Twitter, what's an event without a hashtag? Uh, this one, as it says on the program, is NJ Electric Vehicles. Um, if you want to, and we already have gotten quite a few, if you have a question and you want to tweet that, uh, then we will also print that out and get it up to the moderator. Um, and he will incorporate, you know, some uh, due notice on this. There's a lot more questions than time, so uh, not every question gets uh, included, but we, but Tom will do the best he can. Um, so I do want to introduce Tom Johnson. Uh, where, there he is, uh, a co-founder of uh, NJ Spotlight and, and a good friend and, and really a extraordinary energy and environment reporter for us, and, and, and on this issue especially knows as much as anybody um, and really uh, I think is going to really bring a lot to this discussion. So without further ado, Tom Johnson. Yeah, yeah I think so. Thank you, John. Uh, I just want to acknowledge Commissioner Paul Gordon here. Thank you for coming. Uh, so uh, that was a fabulous presentation by uh, Mark, and it's... Uh, provoked a lot of questions, and uh, I thank everybody who submitted questions. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I may get to ask one of my own questions after I get through all the questions you guys have answered. But first off, uh, we'll have um, uh, Christine uh, who is chief, a uh, deputy chief of staff at the Board of Public of utilities. Uh, she'll start us off. Christine? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Tom, and everyone for being here, and Commissioner Gordon. Um, we're really excited about, you know, every, really everything that um, Mark just spoke about in terms of electric vehicles, but it, it does bear repeating. I know it's something everyone hears all the time, um, but that that transportation is 46% of our in-state greenhouse gas emissions. And if we're going to do anything about New Jersey's contribution to climate change, we really need to focus on transportation. I know everybody is waiting with bated breath for the energy master plan, the final energy master plan to be released. Um, and as you probably know, one of the central goals of the EMP is 100% clean energy and meeting the Global Warming Response Act 80% emission reductions goals. Electrifying the transportation sector, sector is the first EMP strategy, and it's in part because it is such a large contribution to climate change. We have a relatively low carbon electric grid as it is now. So a focus on transportation and moving electric vehicles forward is a major tenant for the EMP. Just to give you a little bit of background as, as to how EVs um, 
are, you know, have, have played in the energy master plan. Mark alluded to the IEP. I know it's a little confusing, EMP, IEP. Um, the IEP is the integrated energy plan. And early last year, we engaged Rocky Mountain Institute to help us develop modeling for how we get to the goals of 100% clean energy and the 80 by 50 <coughs> reduction goals in the Global Warming Response Act. The only additional constraint we tasked RMI with was to identify the least cost scenario to achieve those goals. And the IEP modeling and results have been made public. So if you haven't seen them, you can go to the BPU website. Um, but the IEP identified that electrifying the transportation sector has to be a major component for reaching those goals. And those goals were outlined by Governor Murphy. The 100% clean energy goal has been part of, of his administration from the very beginning. As part of, of his commitment, um, we have created the partnership to plug in with the three agencies that Mark spoke about. We have signed on New Jersey to the MOU, the ZEV Zero Emission Vehicle MOU, with a target of reaching 330 EVs by 2025. I don't think I need to say we're not that close to that goal right now, but we are doing so many things to get to that place. Um, one of the things that Governor Murphy did in conjunction with the legislature is through the budget process to dedicate $30 million to help support the purchase and use of EVs and associated charging. And I'm sure many of the people in this room are uh, also waiting to see how that money is going to be spent. Earlier this month, the board voted to award the $30 million or to award a, a contract to bring on a consultant to help us um, spend the $30 million. I can't release who that name is yet because it's yet to be approved by Treasury, but anytime we'll be, we will be able to share anytime soon who the consultant is. And we hope to um, kick off a straw proposal and stakeholder process early in the first quarter of next year so that we can figure out how to best incentivize um, not just EVs, but the associated charging infrastructure. Because as Mark talked about, you know, the cost is a major barrier. So we are in the process of, um, of thinking about that right now. We'll be looking for stakeholder input. We really need to bring down the costs um, for, for all residents, for anyone who's interested in purchasing an EV. And so to that end, that, you know, that's really what we're focusing on with that, that um, $30 million. In addition, we have started a local government program. Um, there are some flyers actually by the door. You may or may not know that now for the first time, uh, the state contract has electric vehicles on it. So, you know, the, the both those state and local governments can purchase EVs on the state contract, bringing down the costs of EVs. But just earlier in December, the BPU launched a program to help local government authorities, counties, uh, util local utility authorities so that they can electrify their fleet because it's really important that the state, thank you, you want to switch? <laughs> I probably don't need it, but um, it's really important that the state and local governments are a leader in electrifying their fleets. Um, it's not 
uh, the contribution to emissions is not that significant compared to just personal vehicles. But if we're going to be a leader, we really need to be focusing on electrifying both state and local fleets. So the local government program provides a, an incentive for the purchase of up to two battery electric vehicles and an associated um, charging station. And one of the priorities is that charging station will be used um, or available for use to the public. Because as Mark pointed out, range anxiety and having the visibility of charging stations that are available to the public is a big part of, um, of making sure that people feel comfortable in driving EVs. So we are doing a lot at the BPU and also throughout the state. I see colleagues from DEP. They're working on maps right now to identify where charging infrastructure um, can, is, and should be located. Um, as Mark pointed out, we have two of the four EDCs, uh, electric utilities, that have submitted um, filing for EV programs, and we are currently evaluating them. Um, we want to make sure that we're doing that in a holistic and consistent approach. Um, so I know there are a lot of people wondering when those things are you know, going to be moving forward, but they are publicly available so you can review them. Um, and I'm just you know, going to close by saying we, we are taking electric vehicles and electrification very seriously. It's a major priority for the governor. It's a major priority for President Fiordaliso, the BPU president. And so we are taking it very seriously and excited to move forward. <clears throat> Thank you, Christine. Uh, before you... Uh Go to the second speaker. I have to ask you, a lot of people in the room are wondering, when is the energy master plan coming out? <laughs> and is it going to be before the end of the year? Um, I will say it is the 2019 energy master plan. <laughs> okay, next up, we have uh, John Dempsey. He's manager, let me see if I get this right, of transmis Transmission and strategic development. Is that right? Close enough. All right, well, I'll try again next time. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad I'm not going to be as under as much pressure as you uh, will be over the next eight days or 10 days or what have you. But uh, no, very excited to be here um, representing PSE&G, and we are certainly proud to sponsor this event because we really do agree with the governor's strategy around EV adoption, and we share a lot of the same goals in terms of promoting a low carbon future for New Jersey. And that encompasses both the activities on the regulated side, but also what we're working on on the deregulated side of the house with our, our generation fleet. Um, you know, I think Mark laid out a lot of the issues, so I'm, I'm not gonna kind of re retread them. Um, you know, generally we view electric vehicle uh, involvement from the utility perspective in, in really two places. One is on the residential side. And as Mark indicated, rate design and, and different ways to incent um, an intelligent charging uh, so that folks are not coming home at six o'clock and plugging in and in the summer really causing their load on their houses to effectively double in an instant um, to more of a managed charging approach. We view that as, as really critical for just using the infrastructure we have more wisely. I, you know, I don't think we envision building out new four and 13 kV circuits all over New Jersey. But if you do have five or 10% EV penetration, the reality is it's just a very dramatic uh, change in the way uh, houses are using electricity. So we want to be involved in that to really manage that effectively. Um, on the public charging front, I think that's another area where, um, as we have identified in our filing, there's probably a need for some involvement on the utility part, again, on a rate design issue, but also 
Um, you know, I think the one fact Mark maybe didn't say, um, which I'm glad he didn't because I had it in my head and I wanted to mention is I think there's 22 publicly accessible DC fast chargers right now in, in New Jersey. And as somebody that's currently going through the process of buying potentially an EV, um, that is something you're thinking about is, is when, when will you be able to charge this, especially given the uh, somewhat premium on, on EVs. Hey, let's see. Give me your best offer, Jim, um, and I'll call my wife. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's probably something to be said for reinforcing the system in, in, in intelligent places to allow for a, a sub substantive withdrawal of power um, uh, by EVs charging at once. You know, again, it's just a different way that you're going to be using electricity. A rest stop, for example, may, might have one or two fast chargers or chargers right now, if you wanted to actually get the goals, you, you, you know, the state's goals met, you'd need a lot more charging and a lot faster charging so that you can have 15 or 20 cars all pulling a lot of power out of that system at once so that you could get on the road again in 20 or 30 minutes as opposed to maybe an hour or more. So, you know, again, we can talk more about it, but that's um, our, our, uh, our initial thoughts and really appreciate the opportunity to speak today. Okay, up next is, uh, I think, Jim Appleton of NJ Carr. Uh, great, thanks. Um, I think we have a couple of slides, uh, slide deck here. And uh, let me just say, um, I work with uh, the, the state's new car dealers. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody in this room, I think it's fair to say, wants to see more EVs on the road. Uh, but we haven't all arrived at that. Uh, the same way. Uh, some of us are interested in a, uh, the environmental and public health benefits of EVs. Some want to sell more electricity. Uh, some want to uh, build out the um, uh, uh, charging infrastructure to relieve range anxiety. Uh, but New Jersey's new car dealers uh, have come to this uh, EV party um, really for none of those reasons. It's, it's quite simply because uh, there are uh, CARB, California Air Resource Board, imposed mandates, which have been in place in New Jersey for more than a decade. Uh, some of us are, I mean, we're hearing about the goals, new goals that are being set. Um, nonsense. Uh, these have been goals that were set nearly 15 years ago in this state, and literally nothing has been done uh, to date to try to move us from where we are, which is a little, little adoption to where we have to, do, to be. Um, the CARB mandates um, uh, apply to about a dozen states across the nation, which represent fully 37% of all vehicle sales in the US. Um, and as these CARB mandates begin to roll out, um, you've seen the tens of billions of dollars that the automakers have invested in a new product that'll come to market. Um, we have some slides in this first one. If you don't mind, I'm gonna jump up here um, because take, take a look at the, the CARB mandate requires 4.5% uh, of all vehicles sold last year in New Jersey to be battery electric vehicles. Um, New Jersey's sales last year were 518,000. Um, 500, um, so the, 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 the requirement last year was to sell 23, almost 24,000 EVs. We sold 5,600. This year, the mandate ramps up 2.5% a year. Um, this year, the mandate is 7%. We expect to sell uh, 500 and 
25,000 vehicles this year, which would, simple math, be 36,000 vehicles would have to be sold this year of a type we'll be lucky to hit 7,300. Fast forward to 2025, when the mandate ramps up to uh, fully 22% of all vehicles would be expected to be uh, battery electrics, it's 116,000. If we continue on the uh, trajectory that uh, we have from uh, 2018 to 2019, which was a very significant, very um, impressive 23% growth, um, we won't get anywhere near uh, 116,000 uh, by uh, the time the um, uh, 2025 rolls around. So um, let's let's take a look at um, at what some of the the problems are uh, associated with uh, with these vehicles. Hang on one second. Is that the right slide? Yeah. So. So the, the, good, the good news is that um, there are um, dozens, uh, scores of new vehicles uh, that are coming to the market uh, in the next um, couple of years. Uh, you see here that right now there are some 60 new models that will be coming out, uh, battery electric models in the next year. Uh, and um, and uh, if we, uh, if we, uh, add in all the dozens of plug-in hybrids and other advanced technology vehicles, uh, the future for cleaner vehicles on New Jersey's roads are pretty high. But even with all this new and uh, exciting product, uh, New Jersey's never going to reach the um, – this is not advancing – New Jersey's never going to reach the um, uh, the car mandates uh, because of uh, two basic issues, uh, price – and range anxiety. So let's take a look first at price. Here are some samples of some EVs. I don't know why this is having trouble loading. I apologize. Um, here's some examples of EVs and their comparable internal combustion or ICE vehicles. And you can see the delta between the purchase price for an EV and a, its comparable internal combustion engine vehicle is anywhere from seventeen to sixteen thousand dollars. If we add in the um, uh, sales tax, which currently doesn't apply to EV vehicles, the transaction price differential drops to twelve to fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars. It's an improvement. If you happen to qualify, if you're fortunate enough to pay $7,500 a year or more in federal taxes, and you qualify for the federal tax break, um, you can start to see these numbers are coming in line even further. Um, and that $7,500 federal tax break is available on all product in the market right now, except for Tesla and General Motors product, uh, which is, uh, because of federal laws, is a lower tax break. But you can see that without some further intervention, um, these price differentials are still going to be hard for most consumers to overcome. $7,000 to $8,000 price differential is just too much. Add in the expected um, um, incentives that we're talking about at, um, as part of the legislation that's currently pending in Trenton, 
And as we discuss what the BPU will be doing next, uh, we're, we're hoping that we can uh, begin to roll this out sooner rather than later. You'll see that we're now getting into the range where $2,000 to $3,000, where you know, a, a car dealer can, can show a customer that there's a real value proposition and a reason why they should consider an electric vehicle. Mark, I love you dearly and you're a brilliant guy, but what you don't know about the car business could fill volumes. The reason why, the reason why you uh, founded five dealerships that uh, somebody wasn't interested in selling you an electric vehicle is quite simply because they didn't have one in stock because the manufacturers haven't sent them to New Jersey because New Jersey hasn't done the homework it needs to do to create a marketplace as California has where these vehicles will be able to sell. So I'll try not to take it personally, Mark, but uh, the, um, the, the, the unscientific antidote, um, you know, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. Dealers want to sell what people want to buy. Um, and dealers stock what people want to buy. And right now, people don't want to buy EVs in the numbers that they're mandated by state law for two simple reasons, price and range anxiety. Thank you, Jim. That was very good. And uh, we'll give Mark an opportunity to respond eventually. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Next up is Doug O'Malley, Director of Environment in New Jersey. Doug? Thank you, Tom. And I, I wanted to, um, I, I have a lot to say about, you know, this issue, but I, I wanted to focus my comments on the part of electric vehicles that we're not talking about right now. And that's not cars, unlike trucks, that's diesel buses. Um, there is obviously uh, other diesel vehicles on the road, medium and heavy duty. Um, but I wanted to focus specifically on diesel buses and also to reference um, two members of the audience that have thought a lot about this. One, Commissioner Gordon, who in a former life was a chair of the Senate Transportation Committee, and then Peg Hanna from DEP, who coordinated the work to retrofit uh, diesel buses uh, with pollution filters uh, 15 years ago. The re simple reality now is that we are, you know, it's 15 years in the future uh, we have the technology to move forward on electrifying our New Jersey transit bus fleet. And we have uh, more than 60 transit agencies across America that have made commitments to do exactly that, to electrify their bus fleets by 2040. Uh, and they include some of our closest neighbors, including MTA, which has 5,700 buses. They include uh, California and Los Angeles County, which has a commitment to electrify its fleet by 2030. And Mayor Garcetti accelerated that timeline literally two weeks ago to 2028. Currently, New Jersey Transit, unfortunately, has not made that commitment. And even worse, New Jersey Transit is disparaging electric bus technology and is essentially staying on the sidelines with one exception. And that exception is $10 million from the Volkswagen settlement and FDA grants to allow a pilot project in Camden that will start in the middle of next year in 2021 for eight electric buses. The simple reality is we need to do more. We need to do it faster. And one of the findings of the Highland uh, audit, which now has been out for a year, is that New Jersey Transit needs to have a strategic plan for all of its operations. And at the select, uh, commit, Senate Select Committee on New Jersey Transit yesterday, we heard from many testifiers on the importance of having a dedicated source of funding for New Jersey Transit. But I had the, the honor of, of testifying at the very end with a, you know, a crowd of anti-vaxxers in the, in the background that made it kind of hard to d deliver the testimony. 
But, you know, the um, what that committee is is looking at is that New Jersey transit needs to be dragged kind of kicking and screaming into the into the future, into the into the 21st century. Now, New Jersey transit will legitimately say, you know, this is not an easy transition. There are real issues on why electrification can't be done overnight. Um, They include the upfront cost of the buses. They include the importance of electrifying the bus depots. Uh, They include, um, you know, the reality that. Uh, you know, New Jersey transit buses uh, travel much more farther distances than a typical uh, city transit agency. Um, all of those are hurdles to overcome. Um, but I, I want to talk about why we actually need to electrify New Jersey transit buses. And I think the, the single most important reason, that there's a couple, um, I, and I'll, I'll talk through all of them, but the single most important is health. Um, the second is, is climate. And the third is at, at overall cost. And I want to focus on health because um, there's a simple reason why 15 years ago we had a ballot measure to retrofit our current diesel buses. And that's because diesel buses emit one of the most toxic pollutants possible. It's PM 2.5, microscopic particles that end up lodged in our lungs. And that has a real health impact, especially in urban communities and especially environmental justice communities. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen 60 transit agencies move forward. Um, SEPTA has electric buses on the road right now. So does MTA. They're not waiting. And the science on a PM 2.5 clearly shows that you can have um, you can have diesel particulates end up in flaming lungs, triggering asthma attacks, and leading to overall health problems. And when we think of air pollution, we often think of smog. That certainly is a huge issue, and electric vehicles can reduce smog. But PM 2.5 is even more deadly. It's essentially having a mini power plant run through our neighborhoods on a daily basis. And this has a direct economic impact. Uh, Columbia University studied the health, economic impact of health costs of transitioning one diesel bus to electric. That health impact annually was $150,000. That's $1.5 billion over the course of a decade. So when we think of uh, the, and there's also EPA data showing that PM 2.5 in the urban environment from vehicles is four times as expensive as PM 2.5 from a power plant. All of that means that we need to be prioritizing electrification in our communities right now. So here's the other reason why it makes sense to transition to electric vehicles for our bus fleet is that the operational cost is massively cheaper than your typical vehicle. So there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done to uh, service uh, diesel buses. Uh, their operational costs, while they're cheaper on the upfront, it's about half a million to buy a diesel bus, it's about 750000 to, to buy an electric. The maintenance cost for a diesel bus um, is twice as much as an electric vehicle, more than uh, half a million dollars over the course of its life. So right there, you have economic savings over the course of an electric vehicle and that over the course of the life of an electric bus. So that's why we're seeing all these transit agencies commit to electrification. They are doing road tests. They are collecting data. You go to LA, you go to King County, Seattle, you go to, um, you, you go to MTA. They, are, they have buses on the road right now. They're working to collect that data. We should not be waiting. And Earlier t- this week, EDA, uh, there was an announcement of a bond measure for the procurement plan for New Jersey Transit to replace some of its oldest diesel buses. Obviously, New Jersey Transit has a world of problems right now, but every diesel bus that is purchased is going to be on the road for more than a decade. So we need New Jersey Transit 
to electrify, commit to electrify its bus fleet by 2040. And that's one of, I think, the most important equity provisions that's in the electric vehicle bill right now in front of the legislature. We need New Jersey Transit, you know, isn't going to do this on their own. And that's why we need the legislature to move forward on the omnibus electric vehicle bill and pass it in lame duck. Okay, thanks, Doug. Uh, next up is Stephanie Brand, Division of Director of the Division of uh, Rate Council. Thanks, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, I represent the ratepayers, the people who pay your util their utility bills. Pretty much everybody in the state. Um, and I, you know, I talk about how we have even more people than the taxpayers because we include the the churches and the schools as well. So really, um, you know, my constituency are the people who are going to pay for all of this. And um, we agree that we need to electrify our transportation um, system. I, I, I don't just disagree with any of that. However, at the same time we're doing that, we need to develop 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind. We need to develop um, a substantial amount of more of solar electricity. We need to um, really take on aggressive uh, energy efficiency programs and to help try to see what we can do about developing energy storage. There are a whole bunch of initiatives that we need to, to embark upon. And we could have, in fact, I think they probably have had a room full of people just like we have here on every single one of those issues. And each one of those is going to cost a lot of money. It just is. And we recognize that. It doesn't mean you don't do it. It does mean, though, that you have to do it in a way that is makes sense is targeted and is not where we aren't overpaying for things um, we've heard a lot today about range anxiety well I've got a few other anxieties I'd like to talk about um, the first is the anxiety I get when people compare this initiative to uh, the development of solar because while we have a fairly uh, uh, well-developed solar industry in the state, no question about it, we have vastly overpaid for the amount of solar that we have. Uh, rate payers alone have contributed and um, over $3 billion to the development of solar. That doesn't even include the net metering benefits that solar people get. And it's not that it's not important. It's not that we don't need to do it. But we we can't afford to overpay and still do the things we want to do. And, and I think that was recognized by the legislature in the Clean Energy Act where they sent us back to the drafting table to say, let's find a better way to do this. Another type of anxiety I think we have to talk about is food anxiety. And, and, and the anxiety of um, one third of the people in New Jersey have trouble meeting their monthly bills. Okay? So that creates a bit of anxiety as well. There are 1.1 million people in this state who don't know if they're going to be able to put food on their table. So we need to make sure that those people get to, get to not, not just way down the road when, um, you know, they, uh, someday we might see uh, prices uh, get moderated by the, the, you know, however many hundred thousands of electric vehicles are on the road. But today, I mean, we need, we need for them to also share in whatever it is that we're doing. Now, I'm not sure if all of you could see. I know when I was sitting back there, I couldn't see all the slides very well. But um, if you saw the slides that Jim put up, and I think that, that it was really important to look at those because he highlighted the, the, the disparities between the cost of the electric vehicles and the cost of comparable 
uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. But I'm not sure if you could see the actual prices of the vehicles that he was talking about. But they were all in the 30-something, 40-something, or more $1,000 range. And that is not affordable for most people in the state. It's not, it wasn't affordable for me when I went out to look for a car. I really wanted to get an electric vehicle, but I couldn't afford it. Okay. And there are a lot of people in this state who just can't afford this right now. So we have to think about the equity component. It is very, very important. And we have to think about those people who are going to be asked to be paid to be to pay for this, who are having trouble deciding, do I pay my electric bill this month? Or do I put food on the table for my kids? Um, I, I do think that, that Doug is right, that one of the ways to address that is to not focus so much on the people who are buying 30% more electricity that we're gonna that they're gonna sell. Um, the car dealers are also gonna do pretty well as well. So um, what we need to do is take advantage of a situation where we don't have to ask the ratepayers to foot the bill, where we can get private industry to step in and do what has to be done. So the way I look at it, I divide it up into sort of different buckets. And I think uh, you know the first bucket is how do we make sure that. Um, our distribution system can really handle all of these cars and people coming and plugging in. Um, you know, there's, I, to be honest, I don't think that anybody's really done this full analysis of exactly what are the implications of doing this. Be and, and part of that is because it's hard to do because there are, you know, you don't know which block everybody's going to decide to buy an electric vehicle on and they're all going to want to plug in when they get home from work. And that's going to impact which circuits have to get replaced. Um, you know, it, it may be that over time we're going to have to replace all of our of our transformers. And that is a huge cost. It is also something we very much want the utilities to be in charge of. We they they have the expertise. They have the ability to make sure, you know, California has frankly not done a very good job of this. Right. We, we have transmission lines that are that are that are that that are not being invested in in the way that they should that have caused a lot of problems in, in California. So we want to make sure the utilities remain focused on the infrastructure, that the utilities make sure the grid doesn't, doesn't uh, fall down. That is an area where absolutely we need the utilities involved and ratepayers are going to pay for that as they should. But there's other areas like um, building charging stations that are, we don't actually need the utilities to, uh, to do. There is a fairly robust, and of course, we've heard a lot of numbers here today. They don't all match up in, in my mind, but I'm sure we can all get on the internet and, and look them up. Um, yeah, according to the DEP uh, website, uh, we've seen a lot of expansion of the uh, building of charging stations. They've been using the Reggie money. They've been using the VW money. Um, according to the, the DEP website, 95% of the people in the state live within 25 miles of a DC charger, a fast charger. Um, is that enough? No, of course it's not enough, and more needs to be built. But but to sit here today and say there's no way private industry is going to develop what we need, I, I don't I don't I don't think we know that yet, and I don't think we know yet whether or not there are other sources of fund funds that will allow us to to build out that infrastructure. And before we start, um, you know, having the utilities, you know. The, the the petitions that we see that the utilities file to do this stuff are not targeted, right? Uh, PSC and G's. It includes a lot of different things, but you know we're talking in the billions of dollars range. Um, we're talking about utilities coming in asking to build thousands of of chargers, not 
targeted only where the, the private industry is not going to build it. Um, but we do need to do that targeting. We do need to limit the utility um, investment, the, the things that the ratepayers pay, um, to only where we actually need the utilities to do it. Utilities don't, we don't need them to do the charging stations. They don't have a specific relationship with those customers. They don't, it doesn't require the level of expertise that they have. There are other people who can do this. It can be done through private investment. And I, and I'm sure whoever does invest in these things will ultimately do quite well because yes, this is a transformation that we're going to go through. Um, and then finally, the question of incentives. So, you know, we, we, we have seen, uh, you know, utilities coming in saying, well, we want to give EV owners a, um, an incentive, a break on their, on their rates. And, you know, our, our answer is why? You know, we don't give poor people a break on their rates. Why are we giving EV owners a break on their rates? Well, you know, we have to decide, is this something, it's, it's just incredibly regressive, right? You're, you literally are asking poor people to subsidize rich people. I mean, it, it, and it's not going to stay that way. I understand that. Ultimately, poor people will be able to afford electric vehicles. Ultimately, we'll get to our goals. But for right now, it really is that. And so let, let's be honest with ourselves and understand the equities and understand what it's like for people to hear, oh, we have to give an extra $5,000 to people who are buying a $45,000 car. It, it, it really is a very regressive way to go about it. We must be targeted because if we do that and we do all the other things we want to do, we're going to have even more people who aren't sure if they're going to be able to put food on the table. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Stephanie. Uh, I'll let... Uh uh, the panelists uh, weigh in, and I think she raised some very important points, one w which was also raised by one of the uh, questions I got. He uh, basically agreed with you on the local distribution cost, saying that uh, it's going to be need tremendous upgrades, and we don't know the cost. Why don't we ask John to talk about that? as well as uh, respond to some of uh, Stephanie's comments about uh, limiting utility investments. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we agree on the, um, on the residential issue to a certain extent. I mean, we've talked to our planners about some of the projections. And when we put together our filing, we were following the guidance of the state and saying, how many of those ratepayers to get to that goal are in our territory, and then how do we kind of work that into the number of smart chargers we're going to have, not we're going to have, they're going to have in their homes, and then what are the implications on the circuits? And so I feel like right now, at least in that short term, the investment in terms of traditional poles and wires is relatively light at the local distribution level. It's really about just managing to the capacity we have as opposed to building more. I mean, longer term, I agree, there's there's needs to be more study. I think part of the challenge is we don't have a lot of visibility into the lower level distribution uh, draws and demands in, in, in real time. And so we need to figure that out. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think on the uh, utility involvement piece, I, I you know, some of these things I certainly agree with. I don't think, at least from PSE&G's perspective, we want to be owning every charger in the, uh, you know, in, in our territory. Uh, what our plan has uh, put forth is that we build out some of the infrastructure of the circuits that lead to some of these DC fast charging locations and have private developers actually own the chargers and manage them. I think it's not a core business of ours and we recognize that. 
um, except in situations where, as I think Mark indicated earlier, maybe the private sector does not want to develop in certain areas because they don't see a profit opportunity and we could be a provider of last resort uh, for those communities where we think there's a need for a geographic distribution of, of charging infrastructure, but perhaps not an ability for the private sector to uh, to meet that need on its own. So I agree it's a balance and we need to figure that out. And I think we're certainly uh, encouraged by some of the dialogue and, and, and want to discuss these ideas further, uh, you know, with the BPU. Anybody else? Okay. Um, what about... Uh, Tom, you didn't Tom, before we move on, I actually wanted to bring up something that was referenced by Christine and I think needs to be kind of part of the conversation of, of cost. So this event was kicked off by Patty Moynihan, who is a commissioner at the California Energy Commission. And Patty talked about in the EV market, she talked about cost, she talked about convenience and consumer awareness. And she was missing a fourth C, and that's climate. Because as Christine said, the largest source of carbon emissions in the state come from our transportation sector. Uh, you know, they, they, it's just, it's a fact, not just here in New Jersey, but nationally. And yesterday we had a, a moment again of, um, you know, of, of just kind of the climate reality for our state. Uh, again, to highlight DEP, Commissioner McCabe, along with uh, Rutgers University, put out a study that showed that we're seeing sea level rise twice as fast in New Jersey than elsewhere in the nation. The Rutgers University research from Bob Kopp that said we'd see a sea level rise of a foot and a half by 2050 has now changed to two feet. And now we're looking at sea level rise by the end of the century at six feet. And what Commissioner McCabe said is we have to start thinking about coastal retreat. Those are words that we have not heard before um, from a, you know, someone of her stature. But after Sandy, we heard those conversations a lot. You know, what happens after the next storm? So Sandy had an impact in the, of, you know, $70 billion. And so the question is, who gets impacted by sea level rise? Who could not rebuild? And so, you know, when we talk about cost, yes, as Stephanie said, we have to think about the cost of the ratepayers. We also have to think about the cost of inaction, the cost of, of healthcare impacts of our current transportation system, as well as the cost of not being able to move forward, as, as Jim has referenced, to the clean car standards. These are not kind of, you know, lofty goals. These are mandates from the uh, from CARB, from the California Air Resources Board. We are on the hook. We are way behind. You know, right now, the private market is not meeting this demand in the way that we need it to. The, the graph is that we need to get to 330,000 EVs on the road. Right now, we have 30,000. So, it, you know, unless the state is making an investment to electrify our transportation sector and to be able, you know, to make a good faith effort to hit those goals, we're not going to hit them. And that means we're not going to be able to hit our climate goals, which, I, again, you know, Greta Thunberg was just recognized by uh, Time Magazine. This isn't about Greta as person of the year. This is really about climate science as person of the year. You know, we need to reduce our carbon emissions by 45% over the course of the next decade. You know, that is not to level it off. That's a reduction of nearly half. So without an aggressive investment to reduce carbon emissions from our transportation sector, we're just not we're not going to hit that goal. And that's going to have huge ramifications for everyone in the state as well as this region. Okay, uh, Jim. Can we 
you want, but I'm wanting. Yeah, I'm sorry. No one's talking about doing nothing. Okay, and and the fact of the matter is, is are we sure that putting everybody in a Tesla is the best way to reach our climate goals? Or no, definitely not a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Whatever. But but you know, I mean, let, let's be let's be honest here. You know, there are large portions of of our state are people who who will never be able to afford a new car. Yes, step okay. I, so, I, so I appreciate yeah, and I mean, acknowledge. No one's saying don't do nothing. No, I, but let's let's get on, let's maybe get off of our high horse a little bit and start to really look at what is the best way to carve a policy. Let's not talk about you know everything that's going to go on in 2050. Let's talk about how we do this so that people in 2020 can still afford to pay their bills. Yeah, I, I appreciate and acknowledge the. Uh, uh, the, the comments that you're making, and, and really the optics are, are, are nothing any of us who are advocating EVs are comfortable with. Um, certainly not not me showing, uh, as I did, the, the numbers. Um, but let's, let's acknowledge that we have a 15-year-old statute on the books that requires New Jersey to go down the California Air Resources Board path that requires us to meet increasing numbers of EV sales in the state that we are less than a quarter of the way last year and now less than a quarter of the way this year. So cumulatively, we're falling way behind on the mandate. And so it's time for government to put their money where their mandates are. And you know, the problem is government doesn't have money. Um, it's our money. Um, and so Collectively, uh, you know, Doug and, and, uh, and the environmental community have done an extraordinary job articulating the risks. The legislature and the governor have bought into the uh, CARB program. I don't advocate and I don't see anybody else advocating for retreat from the CARB program. So the only question is, how do we go forward? Uh, I think that uh, price, as we've said, is a huge obstacle. Um, but there's another obstacle, a, a um, let's call it a, a structural obstacle. Believe it or not, the California Air Resources Board requirements only obligate manufacturers to deliver cars for sale into the state. They don't actually require that they be sold or that anybody buys them and drives them. The result is that they are shipping, they are building, oh, I'm sorry, they are manufacturing vehicles and they're delivering them for sale into the state at Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, as opposed to building and delivering for sale at numbers and with equipment and styling that people will buy. We're starting to see the prices come down, but they're not coming down fast enough to meet the mandates. We're starting to see more utility, you know, the kinds of cars people want to drive, sport utilities and and crossovers. Sixty percent of the market in New Jersey is sport utilities and crossovers. Yet we have just a couple of sport utility and crossover um, EV brands. So, uh, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that we are operating under mandates, that if these mandates are not met, um, the, um, uh, the cost to people who are buying vehicles goes up ex uh, exponentially. I know that these numbers look uh, frightening. The average price of a new car, forget about electric car, the average price of a new car is up to $38,000 uh, per vehicle because of all the safety and technology that's being uh, put into these vehicles. So we, we can't go back. We're not going back. Um, the only question is, how do we move forward and what's the fairest way to try to bring those uh, prices in line? As I say, 
there are structural things that could be done. Uh, we've lobbied the California Air Resources Board to change what we think is a wrongheaded approach to the regulation, which allows automakers essentially to game the system. Uh, by uh, forcing vehicles uh, onto dealers' lots that uh, aren't priced to sell and aren't equipped uh, to meet market demands. Jim, uh, before you uh, give up the mic, uh, uh, would, you, uh, would you spell out what the penalties are uh, uh, for not meeting the mandates and why haven't they kicked in? Death. Yet, uh. <laughs> uh, no. It's, uh, so, so the way the way it works right now is is automakers who fail to meet their um, obligations, and most of them are, um, have to either um, pay fines or buy absolution. Um, and what they're doing is they're buying absolution uh, from the one car company who has credits to sell. Uh, and if that car company, um, uh, if you look at the financials for, for Tesla uh, over the last year and a half or so, uh, they took in something like $420 million. Um, that $420 million was from competing automakers whose customers paid more for their vehicles uh, so that uh, they could buy absolution from Tesla. That's why you see all these other automakers, particularly those that compete against Tesla, the BMWs and the Porsches, for example. They said, hey, we can lose $420 million all on our own. Um, we'll, build our, we'll build our own product. Uh, and so they're starting to flood the market with a competitive product, which is a good thing. But unfortunately, if, if, if the automakers don't meet the mandate, they have to um, either buy credits on the open market, and there's a limited supply of them, um, or they pay fines. Interestingly, uh, Subaru, uh, which is a very green company, but at this point in time doesn't have a really well thought out EV strategy. Uh, they just added an $86 surcharge to every vehicle they sell in the state for environmental compliance. So that's what they've put as the number that they're going to use to buy credits on the open market. Um, and they're just the first. I, I'm sure this is something I'll see the other automakers doing. So all of you are paying more for your cars now um, So in order to meet these mandates. As I said, they're in place in 12 states that represent 37% of the auto market. So this isn't just a Jersey thing. This is 40, almost, nearly 40% of the auto market is affected by the car mandate, which, as I say, is, is wrongheaded um, and uh, needs to be adjusted. So Stephanie brought up a point about um, that uh, this uh, whole system is regressive. And, well, some people think it's regressive. And how do we balance at making it a fairer system so that uh, we don't have what happened with solar where the poorer customers were subsidizing Solar being put on roofs and summit and uh, short hills and more, uh, other areas like that. And how do we arrive at the balance that Doug raised about maybe it makes more sense uh, directing uh, uh, incentives to uh, target urban areas where kids are getting on buses that uh, are spewing diesel emissions into the air they breathe. So I, I think I can start. I, 
I want to just um, reiterate that cost is is something that the BPU is always thinking about. We want to make sure that utility service is affordable. Um, it's also something that the Murphy administration is committed to, particularly when we talk about making sure that low and moderate income residents have access to clean energy. Because as Tom and, and Stephanie and others have pointed out, you know, solar is, it, it is still expensive and it is and has been traditionally something that moderate and higher income residents can afford, but not necessarily low and moderate income residents. And so, you know, what one thing that the Murphy administration is doing, you know, and, and the BPU is working on right now is community solar and ensuring that low and moderate income residents have access to solar energy. And one of the other things that we are doing and in related as it relates to electric vehicles is we're we are looking at and we just awarded a grant to Rowan University to look at how electric vehicles, both electrification and charging stations can be made accessible to low income residents. It is absolutely something that we have to think about. Um, it's not a single strategy to incentivize the purchase of new vehicles so that we're bringing down the costs of maybe a 35 or $40,000 vehicle is important for getting the market going and for increasing the number of vehicles that are on the road. And doing that has global effects, right? When, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about you know ground level pollution, making sure that there are fewer gas-powered vehicles on the road and more electric vehicles does benefit everyone. But it is absolutely right that we have to think about ways that low-income residents can have access to electrification. If they, if they purchase... If they purchase vehicles, we want to make sure that, you know, that the cars are, are affordable for everybody. Um, Pre-owned electric vehicles are much less expensive right now. So we need to make sure that they're affordable for everybody. We need to make sure that there are car sharing programs for residents, you know, who don't have cars. Many people in New Jersey, particularly low income residents, don't and will never own a personal vehicle. So we want to make sure that we are providing those opportunities for clean transportation through car sharing through public transportation so that everybody has access. So it is not an all or nothing when it comes to incentivizing personal vehicles and charging infrastructure. It's, it's really about making sure everyone in the state of New Jersey has access to clean energy and clean transportation options. I agree completely. And I, I think it's public transportation, it's ride sharing, it's fleets. The focus has to be on those things first. And then, you know what, I, I, once you have all of that, I think you're likely to see the type of infrastructure that will allow people to maybe address some of their range anxiety, maybe allow them to, to um, you know, those who can afford an, a personal um, uh, electric vehicle will, you know, it will, it will help with some, some of the issues that, th that they uh, face. But, you know, it, it, making sure that, you know, every... Uh, Uber or Lyft or, or Zipcar or, or things like that, ride-sharing ride -sharing opportunities for people who don't own cars. Public transportation. I live 20 minutes away from where I work, and I do not have a public transportation option. My only option is to go to New York City and come back. And, and it's crazy. Um, and, 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 and believe me, it's like that all over the state. And I, I think we need to think about, you know, are there other ways of doing this where we can take our precious resources and, and really make a big dent in the type of emissions that, um, that we're seeing? There, there are a couple areas, um, new areas that are developing, uh, particularly 
that are particularly amenable to EVs that will help in um, uh, underprivileged communities. Uh, car sharing um, is and subscription services is something you don't have to buy a $45,000 car to have access to personal mobility. Technology, urbanization, um, electrification, these are all feeding into new forms of personal mobility that will allow people of lesser means to have access to clean, um, uh, clean transportation options. But also, there are old solutions that actually work. Cash for clunkers. Um, you know, I think we could do more in the environmental justice community through a cash for clunkers program than we'll do in the next 15 years with EVs. I mean, it's, it's just, um, th there are people in this state, as you say, Stephanie, who live in communities, um, working class, moderate means people who are, who are never gonna buy a new car. Um, and their old car is exponentially less clean than a newer car that they could buy, even if it wasn't an electric vehicle. Even better if it is, and if we can make that work, so much the better. But I think there are there are new technologies, subscriptions, old solutions, cash for clunkers that are out there, and we ought to be examining. All right. So just one real quick, Tom. What you know? While we're talking about how this affects everybody, um, you know, I want to thank Stephanie because I think she's she's given us a really good way to think about this problem, which is I think there's agreement we can't do nothing. Right. There's agreement. We can't do nothing. So if we're going to do something, the issue is how do we do something in a way that makes sure that we don't overpay and that's fair and appropriate? And, I'm, and actually, Stephanie and I agree. A lot of stuff. And I certainly agree with that. So the question is, how do we sort that out? How do we do it in a way that we don't overpay and is fair and appropriate? And I think we have to you know, really get into the details and understand that there are multiple moving parts. I think it's easy to look at if somebody proposes a program, that means costs are going to go up. And if you look just at that, that's true. But there's other things going on as well. There are other things that could drive rates down. And there is a cost of inaction. And if we're concerned about what all ratepayers might have to pay for, one thing we should be really worried about is how this is going to impact the grid. We have an opportunity to either manage these loads in a smart way or if we don't do that, by default, we're doing it in a dumb way. And you mentioned that we haven't studied enough. I agree with that. But we have studied a lot. Um, and we know enough at this point, and there's experience in other states, that if we don't get ahead of this and we sort of let the market develop naturally, the natural trend is for everybody to come home and plug in when they get home. And that's the absolute worst time to do it. And the result of that will be, and again, the number that we've discovered, and this is held true in every territory where I've examined this at an engineering level, is that managed charging programs reduce that impact by about a factor of four. And what that translates to for real people is that we can defer and if not reduce the costs that all ratepayers are going to have to pay to deal with these grid upgrades. So your question about why should we pay someone to buy this kind of charger or that kind of charger? Or why should we pay someone to participate in a different kind of rate incentive? Um, yes, that's going to cost something. It looks like the costs go up. But we're doing that because we can avoid harm that would cause costs to go up for everybody later. Now, I agree with you. That has to be done very carefully. And there's more work to be done there. And we can't study this enough. I think we've got several decades of work to really figure this out. But I think the way to answer the question about how do we make sure that we don't overpay 
and that it's fair and appropriate is to really get into the details about the multiple moving parts and understand not just the cost of the programs that drive rates up, but also the other implications that either could drive rates down short term or avoid harm, which everybody would have to pay for. And that would be unfair, in my view. Um. As Stephanie mentioned earlier, there's a ton of other costs that uh, ratepayers are going to be confronting in the next decade. Have we jumped uh, ahead of ourselves? Should we have decided, I mean, I think most of the panelists here today would say that electrifying the transportation sector is one of the best things we can do for clean air and meeting global climate goals. But we've already decided we're going to subsidize nuclear to keep it, uh, uh, prevent plants from closing. We've already decided to do uh, now 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind. I mean, should we be saying, okay, looking at all these things, which, which is the most appropriate way to go and gets a, us the biggest bang for the buck? Do we need to refocus? Just a very quick answer is it's important to realize there's a huge synergy between vehicle electrification and renewable energy. The biggest bang for the buck is to do both of those at the same time, not discounting the fact that we've already made some decisions that have costs. So we sort of can't undo those. We can't remake those decisions. But it's important to realize that the synergy between things we've already committed to and things that we could do is huge. Uh, and And that's worth keeping in mind, I think. I don't think we have the time to wait to, you know, we can't wait till we develop all the offshore wind in order to start electrifying the vehicles. I, I, we, we don't have that, that type of time. But what I think it does mean is it's really, really important that we not put ourselves in silos, okay? We have to have the people who are looking at the offshore wind understand what the people who are doing electric vehicles are doing or what the people who are doing solar are doing. It has to be looked at as an integrated whole. And that's why I'm really happy that we're going to see we're going to see the energy master plan. The you know BP was doing some modeling to to look at sort of how things interact, which is very hard to do. Let me just say, um, and uh, you know, and we have to look at rate impacts. I think you know, uh, I I, th- I believe that BP was also looking at trying to get some level of a rate impact analysis connected to the EMP, so that we can see how all the parts fit together. And I think that's essential because we. Because, because you know, when people get their bills, they get their bills, and they don't know what piece of it is for offshore wind, what piece of it is for EV rebates, or anything like that. What they see is just a, a higher bill, and the bills are going to go up. They are. They may ultimately come down, or they, or you know, costs overall may ultimately uh, come down, but initially they're going to go up. And so we need to make a, a good case to the public as to why we're we're doing this, and it can't just be. Oh, in 2050, you know, the sea level is going to rise in 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 a in a, uh, a foot because people who are having trouble me- paying their bills today need to understand why this is important. But we we don't have the time to wait to stage it. What we have to do though is make sure that we are looking at it all on a holistic basis. So I have, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is that when we look at our clean energy future and clean renewable energy technologies, they are always put um, on under, uh, you know, a pretty fine microscope. 
And that's not to say that that shouldn't happen, but could go back to the Offshore Wind Economic Development Act. Offshore wind has to meet a net economics benefit test. And so when we, and, and part of the reason why that's good is not only for clean energy, we're creating a new economic model for the state. And New Jersey has the potential to be the national leader in not just offshore wind, but an offshore wind supply chain. And I think there's a very similar argument to be made for electric vehicles in the sense that right now, New Jersey is behind other East Coast states. But if we're able to make this investment, whether it be on both light duty cars and trucks, as well as electric buses, we can attract outside investment. And so no one is, is saying that, you know, we should, you know, throw money at electric cars without looking at the impact on consumers. And I think one of the other just key aspects here is that, you know, the amount of money we're talking about is not insignificant, but rebates work. And if, if we are going to hit the CARB standards, uh, Georgia, which had a $5,000 rebate, immediately skyrocketed to the top of the list for states that were selling EVs. And obviously, you know, not to disparage the Georgia legislature, they're not exactly the most environmentally progressive, but, you know, the market responded. And so uh, that's, um, you know, that's kind of a reminder of why we need to be making these investments now. And then also just a, a, again on, you know, the, the cost to ratepayers, uh, you know, and I think you're, you're right, Stephanie, right? We can't just be talking about 2050. The, these are real world costs right now. But there's also real world costs for over the course of this new decade, which are about to enter um, the impacts on flood insurance and the, the lingering impacts from Sandy of people not being able to rebuild their homes, people not being able to pay flood insurance. And I think the, the DP analysis, which just came out yesterday, is a reminder that sea level rise, it's not just a 2050 problem, it's a problem right now. And so that's going to mean, and of course, the people that are impacted the most, usually in the floodplains, are usually uh, the not either, if not the uh, poorest amongst us, don't have the capacity to be able to rebuild in the same way and aren't going to be able to uh, pay those costs. So whether you live in Kingsburg or Union Beach or you had a bungalow, you know, those are that, you know, those are also costs that we need to balance. That's not to say that if we pass EVs, we solve the climate crisis, but this is an all of the above, you know, problem. We have to be able to do all of this. Yeah, just to add to that, um, so I think a few things about costs, and one of the things that we need to do, because yes, I think it is critically important, and you know, the BPU is really lucky, I think we have a partner in rate council as we look at these issues, um, but it is critically important that we evaluate all of these clean energy priorities holistically and not just look at them in a silo. Um, fortunately, many of the people that work at the BPU are working on all of the issues. So, cause we're, we're small staff. Um, but you know, when we think about costs, the person that's looking at their bill is, is thinking about their bill. They're not necessarily thinking about their rate. So we need to make sure that um, energy efficiency programs, for example, are accessible to all people so that you know when there are rate impacts that people can, um, can invest in energy efficiency and make their bills go down. Because at the end of the day, most people care what their bill is. They're not necessarily looking at their rate. Um, and we want to make sure that that across the board, um, those savings are available to everybody. And it's just 
another thing that the, you know, the BP is working on right now. Um, and in addition, you know, costs, when we talk about climate costs, there are direct utility costs. If we do nothing, if we do not act and we continue on the path that we have been on and we see these major events, major weather events, there are direct utility costs for those events, right? Power outages, major infrastructure improvements are needed. Since Sandy and, and as we move forward, we're going to see continued infrastructure um, improvements that, that are needed and that are borne by all ratepayers. So really, you know, when we talk about costs associated with utility and as we consider how um, utility investments will be, be will be made with, you know, with, with regard to electric vehicle, we have to think about what if we don't do anything, right? And, and, and what if we are not aggressive as we act on climate change and we will continue to see additional costs directly related to utility infrastructure. So that, that has to be a consideration. We haven't talked much about the bill that's pending in the legislature. It looks like it's uh, having a tough time making its way to enactment um, uh, this term. What's more important in terms of the priorities? Rebates for people to buy cars or putting in place the charging infrastructure to... um, I, I, I know where your answer is going to be. Or putting in place the charging in infrastructure to deal with range anxiety. I don't think you can say one is more important than the other. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sorry. I don't think you can say one is more important than the other. I think it is truly a, a you know, kind of a chicken and egg situation. Um, the, um, you know, uh, we, we've identified, um, you know, Doug says there's four. The commissioner from California says there's three. I say there's two obstacles to EV adoption, and they're equally important: price and range anxiety. Uh, you know, the um, the as, as somebody who drives an electric vehicle, I can tell you that um, I leave the house every morning with a full tank of gas. Um, you know, which is great. Um, the problem is that you know, the in the last four months that I've been driving this vehicle, the four or five times I've needed a charge. I really, really needed a charge. Um, and so, you know, strategic placement of EV infrastructure. When we first started this project a couple of years ago, I used to joke with the, with, with the folks that I thought what we really ought to do is go out and build 1,500 fake charging stations um, because people would have less range anxiety because they're really not going to need them. But when you need it, you really, really need it. So don't ask us to make that um, to make that Sophie's choice, uh, uh, Tom, because I think you can't have an effective EV rollout and sales, even with incentives, unless consumers are trusting that they're going to be able to find charging facilities when they need them. And, and I would add that if you tried to do it that way, if you really had to do just one thing, it wouldn't be very effective, um, you know, spending money in one place, but ignoring the other half of the equation. You, I won't say you're wasting your money, but it would be far less effective. And when you look at what's been done in all other states, we've done a lot of benchmarking across other states. What really makes the biggest impact and gets you the most bang for the buck is to do a couple of strategic things at the same time. And um, and Jim has hit it on the head. We, we've got to address the affordability issues. We've got to address the strategic charging infrastructure, especially for public charging, the analogy I like to use is they're like public bathrooms. You don't need them very often, but when you need it, you really need it, and it's got to be close. 
and um, and nobody does utilization analysis on public bathrooms. You know, we don't have to prove a business case on bathrooms. They're needed, and that's why we do them. It's the same case here. And then we need to address the consumer the consumer awareness issues, which is where agencies come in and other things. So I, I sort of deny your question, Tom. It sort of forces us to pick, and I think um, we don't have to pick. And um, if we did, we'd end up with a much less effective bill. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Well, let me, uh, let me ask some questions that I've gotten. I apologize. I got tons of great questions. Uh, one of the questions I thought was interesting, what's the experience of uh, electric vehicles and force, uh, colder states with, with four seasons? Do they not work as well in um, winter climates? I've heard that. The yeah, there is, there's some physics involved that batteries that are cold don't perform as well as batteries that are not cold. Batteries are like people. They love to be around 70 degrees. And so like uh, in the summer, when I charge my leaf, um, I have an older leaf. It'll give me like 170 miles on a full charge. This morning, it gave me 140 miles on, on a full charge. So that's the result of temperature. So there are some temperature effects. However, uh, the range on these vehicles now and the battery technology on these vehicles is now getting good enough that it's it may be a difference between summer and winter, but even in winter, it's still good enough. And those, battery, those batteries are getting better. We're, we're starting to heat them during the night and take care of them so that you don't have as much issue. So, yeah, there is some fixes going on, but we're now to the point in the market that I don't think it's a limiting issue. And some of the biggest states like Colorado and Vermont, for example, are pretty cold states and they're doing very well with EVs. Uh, John mentioned, I believe it was you, John, you talked about this 22 publicly accessible fast charging stations in the state. What's the number uh, that are going to be needed to reduce range anxiety? Yeah, well, and let me clarify that number just a little bit. So if, if you just look at the alternative fuels database, there's, it looks like we've got a ton of charging. There's something like 950 ports across something like, you know, 300 locations. But that gross number includes a lot of different kinds of chargers. It includes a lot of level two chargers, which take you a couple hours to, to get you what you need. Uh, and then if you just focus on the fast charging, not all chargers are created equal. A lot of those, for example, are Tesla chargers which only work for Tesla cars. So I believe the number that John was quoting is if you sort of filter it down and look at the fast chargers, which is what really addresses people's range anxiety concerns, and then look at the subset of chargers that work for all cars in the market, that's where you get down to there's something like 20, 22 locations that are able to provide a fast charge for everybody. And that's a very different statistic than, you know, the 900 that you hear a lot. So what we need to focus on is not just chargers, but the right kinds of chargers with the right geographic density. And when you really peel down the details, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And just adding to that, I mean, I, I think in our filing, what we've discussed is 100 chargers in our territory or 100 locations, each with, I think, between four or five different ports. So you know, I don't think we're trying to uh, overbuild the universe with with charging infrastructure. Uh, based on, again, the goals of the state, we kind of took a look and thought, what will that actually require along some of the major thoroughfares? And obviously, PS's territory kind of cuts a stripe down the middle of New Jersey. A lot of major roads are along there. And so I think that that's sort of what informed that. Um, I also just following up on the bathroom comment, I am a, a, a 
proud father of a four-year-old who I call the bathroom tourist because every time we're at any public place, she needs to go to the bathroom these days. So I guess it's a, it hits home for me maybe the, the first time I've ever thought of that, but it does make sense. And, and a real direct answer to your question, Tom, is if, if you ask the question, how many fast public fast chargers would we really need to obliterate this range anxiety concern? Charging VC spent a lot of time with the help of our 35 members to try and figure that out. Figure that out. Uh, and there been, has been research by a lot of folks like the National Labs. Um, building on that, our answer is something around 300 locations. Forget the number of chargers, but locations. And what that would do is if you're on a public road in New Jersey, a heavily traveled public road, you'd never be more than about 25 miles from a public fast charger. And, and 25 miles makes sense because that's sort of the time when the yellow light comes on. So you want to be that we think that's a reasonable number. And it puts enough chargers into communities that most people would have one in a town where they live or where they work. And so we're talking about New Jersey here. So the proposition is, can we build 300 of something that would eliminate one of the primary barriers to transforming this market? Now, the challenge is that you want to sort of build the chargers. You got to build the chargers before the cars will come. And that means that those initial chargers are going to have as much use as, as give you the economic business case that you really want. That's the challenge. You know, given that the chargers need to lead the adoption of the vehicles, how do you build the number of chargers that you need to achieve the geographic density that makes consumers comfortable, knowing that they're not going to be used as much until you get more cars on the road? And that's, I think, really the key driver in the policy discussion is how do you get the industry over that that chasm? Because at some point, you're going to have enough cars on the road and they will be attractive, but we've got probably five years at least uh, where we need to lead the market and there are significant challenges to deal with. Tom, there's a related question that you, you didn't ask that I think is worth asking of, of Mark and the other experts, which is not just how many, but how fast. Uh, because, you know, getting, you know, getting um, 20 miles charge in 10 minutes, you know, is, is, is good if you just need another 20 miles to get home. But if you need 150 miles and it's going to take an hour and a half, that's a whole different issue. So it's, it's not just... How many, but how fast? Yeah, and the charging VC roadmap was targeted at, when you look at the most recent vehicles that have come out, they're all offering fast charging above 100 kilowatts. Some of the bigger networks like Electrify America and what NIPA is doing in New York are focusing on 150 kilowatts. And from a consumer perspective, that means that in those rare occasions when you need it, your, your electric bathroom break would be about 15 to 20 minutes. And that's within the realm of... Um, to get you to within 70 to 80 miles, which is to home for most people. So, so you know, we, we think higher powered fast charging is needed. And that especially then really is going to require support from utilities to get, make that power available. Yeah, I was just going to follow up kind of to that point of if we're going to be doing some upgrades to make a site ready for uh, a fast charger, we certainly want to future proof it to the extent possible um, so that we don't have to go out there again. So I, again, that kind of speaks to the discussion around planning this, making sure it's it's efficiently laid out the first time you do it. Yeah, I just want to caution on, uh, you know, I think all this is great. We should build it out. But I really want to caution us on using ratepayer money as venture capital. Um, that's not the goal. You know, we are supposed to pay for used and useful uh, utility property used in the in the provision of electric utility service. If there are ways to get faster chargers, if there are ways to develop 
uh, technology that would allow people to use other people's chargers. I'm still not clear why we're just letting people off, letting Tesla off the hook for for building chargers that are not that everybody else can't use. Um, you know, maybe those are things that private industry. There's a lot. There's a lot of innovation that can be done in this industry that may reduce costs for everyone. And it shouldn't be the ratepayers' job to pay for that venture capital. Um, we haven't talked much about light and uh, a medium and heavy duty uh, vehicles. Where is the technology there today? And that seems to be a logical way of going forward by having fleets convert to that and it would solve, sort of usher in more charging stations around the state. Any thoughts on that? So I just wanted to address that because that's obviously the other aspect of this. You know, we're focusing a lot on light duty vehicles as we should, but the medium and heavy duty uh, you know, sector is is huge. You know, literally millions of, of vehicles on the road. And I wanted to highlight the work of the Volkswagen settlement, the work of uh, again Peg Hanna and DP, because DP through the Volkswagen settlement awards that have come out so far, uh, there's a small segment that is going to targeted level two chargers in downtown areas. But the bulk of the money, 85% of the VW settlement, is going to exactly that medium and heavy duty diesel, uh, medium and heavy duty vehicles. And the awards that were made were essentially kind of a Noah's Ark strategy to electrify medium and heavy duty. And uh, the uh, whether it was straight trucks, whether it's electric garbage trucks, uh, whether it's electric school buses, uh, there is kind of a very good kind of pilot process for that Volkswagen money. Now, there's three tranches of dollars. So the first tranche has gone out. The hope is that DP can continue to invest the Volkswagen $700 in the second and third tranche. Now, that's only $70 million, which that gets you a long way. The other potential here of using state dollars is through uh, the Reggie auction process, which you know, in two weeks, we'll officially rejoin Reggie. By the spring, we'll be officially rejoining the auction process. And those Reggie dollars can also go to medium and heavy duty vehicles. And when we look again you know, at our neighbors out west, out in California, uh, you know, CARB is moving forward with the rule right now to electrify medium and heavy duty vehicles. And again, a decade ago, you know, we did not have this technology. We do now. And there are, um, you know, firms, uh, companies in California that aren't just, you know, doing uh, sketches of this. There are vehicles on the road that are, are electric. And that, I think, is a, a transformation. And we should be using state dollars to, to be able to create more of that infrastructure and incentivize those vehicles because, you know, again, we want to electrify everything on wheels. Um, we've had uh, – this is our second roundtable on – EVs. Uh, and uh, one question that came up, uh, what's the, is there a secondary market for electric vehicles and how long is it going to take if not now? Sure. There's a secondary market. The, the problem, you know, with, with the secondary market for EVs is uh, the good news is that the technology is moving so quickly uh, that the value of the vehicles in the secondary market is, let's just say, suspect. Um, you know, I, I've had family members talk to me about buying a used EV, and I tell them I wouldn't uh, because the used EV that you buy that's three years old is, you know, 
couple generations behind something that you'll be able to buy next year. And so it kind of reminds me of in the 80s when computer technology was moving so quickly, you know, you were afraid to buy, click and buy from Dell on a Monday because by Friday they'd have twice as much memory at half the price. Um, and so it's it's an issue. Uh, but um, I think the secondary market is, is there um, and there'll be a strong um, used car um, EV market. Uh, but it's it's problematic. Well, you you were going to jump in, Mark. At one point, um, yeah. This did, and, and I gladly acknowledge that Jim knows a lot more about the car market than I do. But uh, one thing that I think I've learned is that uh, the statistics I'm seeing are that um, used EVs, despite the the valid issues that Jim raised, are moving off the used car lots really fast. They're they're experiencing some of the shortest hold times. So there is a lot of demand for these vehicles, despite the challenge that Jim mentioned. And I think the issue that Jim talked about will decline as we get better cars on the road. We'll get to the point that you can get a used car with 200 miles of range with a battery that you trust is going to last for the rest of the life of the vehicle. That's that's important. The reason this is really important, though, is when we think about the rebates. Uh, I think it's it's fun to think about the rebates as just helping a rich person get a new car. But we should realize there's a knock-on effect here because those new car buyers are, in essence, the feeder pool for the used car market. And so every rebate that we invest in someone buying a new car today will eventually result in a used car at a much lower price that will be available for those those middle and maybe even ultimately lower income buyers. So I, I think sort of flooding the used car market um, through the rebate program, although that takes a couple of years to kick in, is one way to get lower priced vehicles to the, the full ecosystem. So one thing to reference here is that in the legislation right now, you know, we only have four legislative days left. So lame duck feels like it's long, but it's not. And so the rebates, um, there's an active conversation on including used cars. But I, I wanted to just emphasize that, you know, our legislative process is built around deadlines. And the lame duck session that we're in right now is a really critical deadline. Because, you know, if we don't get this legislation through, you know, we are not going to be in a position to be able to get there's rebates out there. We're not going to be able to position to put New Jersey in a leadership role. Um, you know, next week we'll see the Transportation and Climate Initiative come out with a, uh, you know, a draft, um, you know, a, a draft kind of MOU that can guide uh, the states in the Northeast. But you know, the reality is we shouldn't wait for a regional agreement. We need to be initiating leadership here on the state level. And so, a lot of the concerns that all of the panelists have talked about, that's obviously shared by legislative leadership. So, you know, there's a reason why this bill hasn't hasn't moved yet, because there are thorny problems. But I, I, I do want to flag that, you know, as Jim stated, the reason we're having this conversation is because of CARB. And the reason we are in the Clean Cars program is because 15 years ago, New Jersey passed Clean Cars legislation. At that point, the automakers and the dealers were lobbying against that. The environmental community was lobbying for it. And now we have a change environment with cars that aren't electric golf carts that are getting better. Um, but we obviously have, uh, you know, urgency here. And that's why, you know, this having this forum now is important. But if we're having the same conversation a month from now and a bill has not gotten passed, it's going to be a very different landscape. My question is, um, why does New Jersey, uh, we, given the fiscal constraints New Jersey is under, why does New Jersey have to be in the national leadership position on this? 
why not take our time and um Doug just Doug just told you the, the carb mandates have been in place for 15 years. It's time for the state of New Jersey to put some money where its mandates are. Um, where you know we we can or or would we repeal the clean car law, which I'm not advocating, but these are our options. Um, we either move forward and we come into compliance, or we acknowledge that you know 15 years ago we were just kidding about a commitment <laughs> to a clean car future. And, and, and oh, by the way, one thing we haven't talked about, and it, and it may be heresy in this room, but clean cars or zero emission vehicles, which is the carb mandate, is not, is not just necessarily battery electrics. It's any zero emission vehicle. I believe, based on you know, what I see going on in, in the industry, that we can get to a zero emission light vehicle market by 2050. I don't believe it will be 100% battery electric. I think if you look at the, uh, and, it, and it, it really informs what we do in the long term, not in the near or midterm, but in the long term, what we do in terms of building out infrastructure for battery electrics. Let's remember that smart money in the car business, Daimler Chrysler, uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Toyota, and others, uh, are heavily banked on hydrogen fuel cell, not on electric, not on battery electric. So I think that it is, um, while I think that New Jersey is a very strong battery electric market, and I think that the plans that have been uh, identified for fast charging network are essential. Uh, I think we'll get out to the out years. We need to be concerned about overbuilding for a technology that may be Betamax when VCR is on its way. For those of you who are too young to know that, <laughs> Google it. Uh, Tom, can I just, um, in terms of being a leader, I mean, I, I, I would first say, why would we not be a leader? Um, that would be, I guess, my first response. But, you know, if when we think about climate change and New Jersey specifically, you know, we're in an extremely vulnerable state. We also have a significant significant number of personal vehicles on the road. You know, I'm, I'm sure almost everyone in this room has a personal vehicle, if not everybody. Um, we are extraordinarily densely populated and the transportation pollution um, has a big impact on, you know, all communities, but particularly uh, low and moderate income communities. So I think the question is, why would we not be a leader? All right. It's uh, Let me just add a quick thing to that, Tom, about sure. urgency. Very short. Um, the, the train's already left the station on that, Tom. We don't have the choice of should we be a leader. We've already committed to the CARB requirements. We already have an 80-50 goal. We're already seeing the implications that have real cost impacts for everybody from climate and public health. But the key thing that we've discovered recently is we just released a new projection uh, about vehicle adoption in New Jersey. And what we learned is that if we squander the next couple of years, those goals become impossible. If we don't really stimulate the growth that we need now, like next year, then the growth that you have to achieve five years from now becomes impossible. We get to the point where you have to have two to three hundred percent growth a year if we're not really getting that growth started now. And, and then those goals become out of reach. So the urgency is that we can't afford to squander the next couple of years because it makes it impossible to get there. And I'll, right. I'll be real, real brief here. There's one man that is why we need to act here in New Jersey. And he's being impeached right now in the House of Representatives. And that man, President Trump, 
has worked to repeal California's ability to set clean car standards. And I'm very proud the Murphy administration has joined the challenge to that bogus uh, legal strategy. Um, but that means that New Jersey needs to actually act on the clean car standard and allow us to hit it. Okay, uh, we're several minutes over our time frame. We said we'd get you out at 11.30. I just want to thank the panel. They did a fabulous job. And if you could fill out the survey forms on the desk, they're very helpful to us. I also want to thank Tom for leading this discussion. Safe travels in your EVs. Uh, have a great weekend. Happy holidays. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.